numbers never tell the entire story, regardless of what the analytics people would like you to believe. My guest today is a perfect example of numbers not telling the entire story. You think you know this guy's story, but I don't think you know the whole story. Ladies and gentlemen, today I present Dave Chizowski. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. The spinning, spinning, who's he going to go after? The puck drops and Bob Tyner goes right to King Flaxenfeld. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I am your host, Joe Lazito. Today is lucky episode 13, and man, I am really, really pumped for this episode. Uh, I'll get into uh, my feelings on Mr. Dave Chazowski momentarily. Uh, first, I just want to say that I hope everyone out there is safe. I hope your families are safe. I hope you're taking care. Uh, I know here in New York, things appear to be getting a little bit better, and I know we're one of the hotspots for this uh, stupid virus. So um, things seem to be getting a little bit better slowly but surely, and uh, hopefully, you know, sooner rather than later, we'll be, uh, we'll be back and up and running, and where you live, you'll be back up and running, and we can put this behind us, and uh, we'll all have stories for years to come about uh, about what we're all going through. Um, other than that, uh, as usual, I like to plug a few shows. Uh, Five for Fighting podcast with Alec. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, his episode with Pat Barton, to me, is his new gold standard. Uh, I actually listened to it again. Uh, it's a long episode, but it's a great episode. And uh, I don't know, Alex is a good guy. Alec is a good guy. Pat's a good guy. Uh, check out the Enforcer Appreciation Group on Facebook, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, Pat's also doing uh, a separate page now, I think, for uh, mental illness. So, um, you know, it's really something that you should check out. You don't need to be a hockey fan to uh, appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Pat's been through some stuff. I think we've all been through some stuff. Um, you know, some people are more uh, forthcoming about it than others. And I think for someone like Pat, it's probably um, good for him to get some of this stuff out and also good for him to help other people. Um, so I would definitely recommend checking out Alex's podcast with uh, Pat Barton. Check out all his other stuff. Uh, and I believe he has an episode coming out soon with Rob Ray. If you know me, you know I'm not really a big fan of Rob Ray, but I can't deny his resume. I also can't deny the fact that uh, 
I think he became much better at his job once he had to keep his jersey on. Uh, I'm obviously, if you do know me, I'm one that doesn't let things go, and I don't think I ever quite got over the whole uh, jersey thing. Uh, what Rob did in the uh, beginning of his career, and also the fact that uh, Rob and Mick Vakoda had a, had a pretty great rivalry. Uh, I actually will say that uh, Rob and Ty Domi may have fought more, but I don't even think the rivalry between Rob and Ty comes close to the actual rivalry between uh, Rob Ray and Mick Vakoda. I don't even think it's close, but, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, Ty is uh, Ty, is Ty, and... Um, you know, but uh, Mick's not as much of a self-promoter, I guess. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, definitely check out Alex' episode with Rob Ray. Uh, I, when it comes out, I'm sure it'll be uh, it'll be a fun listen. Um, there's also the Bucket Drop podcast with uh, Bobby. I would check that out. I don't think he has uh, he's put out an episode since the last one I mentioned last week. Uh, but uh, he he does some really good work. I actually was on his show. Once I think we're going to hook up again. He's uh, at some point. He's a little busy right now with a newborn baby, uh, but um, you know I'm sure I'll be back on there and um, definitely uh, give him a listen. So that brings me to today's guest, and that's Dave Chizowski. So if you're an Islander fan of a certain age, you know that Dave was picked second overall. Uh, right after Matt Sundin, and uh, if you're a hockey fan of a certain age, you know Matt Sundin went on to have a pretty good career, and um, a lot of times other people are measured by the success of other people. I guess people are measured by the success of others. But um, And uh, my little uh, rant in the beginning about numbers and analytics, I think Dave's a perfect example of why analytics don't tell the whole story, why numbers don't tell the whole story. Now, myself, uh, I'm 49 years old. I'm, I believe I'm as old school as they come. Here are the numbers that matter to me. It's the numbers that are ba- on the back of the hockey cards that I grew up with. Games played, goals, assists, points, penalty minutes, plus minus. And it actually took me a while to warm up to the whole plus minus number, to be honest, because uh, I think the stat... It's easily manipulated. Um, guy could play a hard shift for a minute and a half and um, come off the ice. His replacement could come on two seconds later, a goal scored. The guy that's been on for two seconds gets the plus. The guy that worked his tail off for 90 seconds doesn't get anything. And it works the other way as far as minus goes. So to me, it's, you know, I think when you get the guys with the ridiculous pluses, like a lot of the uh, Oilers had, uh, back when they were the second best dynasty of the 80s, um, then I think you really have to take a look at it. But And I also think when you get some guys with ridiculous minuses that are on some pretty bad teams, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And I, I think that's, that is my original numbers don't tell the whole story stat. But nowadays with the, these Corsi and uh, entry zone, blah, 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 I, I just I can't do it. And um, I prefer to use the eyeball. Uh, both of them actually and uh, I like to uh, to be old school with that I, I need to know uh, what their numbers are and um, what I've seen uh, with my own two eyes as opposed to analytics because as I've said before um, some of these analytics guys they come up with conclusions based on sheer numbers and never having watched the guy play and I just don't understand how that's possible but I digress here I go uh, getting on my uh 
anti-analytic soapbox. They do have a place in the game, uh, but for people that are now making a career off this stuff, it's mind-boggling. So getting back to Dave. So Dave Chizowski, second overall pick, 1989, um, faced a lot of criticism. And was it justified? Honestly, I don't think so. Um, first of all, if you look at Dave's numbers in uh, Kamloops, and we discussed this, the, the season, his first season there, nice season. Second season there, monster season. I mean, just an absolute monster season. Totally, totally justified the pick. Absolutely 100%. Okay? So now you draft a guy, and they're 18. And I, I've been arguing this for years with people who have been critical of, of Dave. What were you doing at 18? You know, and, and for someone who's an old man like me, I don't really remember what I was doing at 18 other than going to college. So I, I sort of use my oldest son as an example, and he's 19 right now. And he's a, he's a bright kid. Uh, if he continues along his path, he's going to be an engineer. But at 19, I can't imagine my son right now, and he's, and he's a mature 19, um, going off basically, let's, let's use Dave as an example. So Dave is... Uh, he's an Edmonton kid, played uh, hockey in Western Canada, and now we're sending him to another country, all the way on the other side. So now, what am I going to? Now, my son. So I'm going to send him from where he is now, and I'm going to send. Let's say I send him to Edmonton, and at 18, I'm going to put him with a family who he's never met before, and he's supposed to thrive. He's not supposed to make any mistakes, and let's just say there's uh, major league engineering. And I'm going to throw him in that major league engineering. Now, there's other programs for him. He could stay um, here on Long Island and, and uh, grow into an engineer, uh, sort of like a minor league engineering program or a junior engineering program. But instead, he gets picked by this engineering program in Edmonton, and they choose to keep him. And now what he's doing is he's engineering with grown men who have been in the field for years. And... Something it just doesn't click. He doesn't have a chance to develop. Um, you know, it just, it's something that never sat well with me, okay? And then um, when, when I had the opportunity to meet Dave, and, and like I said um, in the interview, I don't remember exactly when I met him. It was one of two times. It was either after his fight with Dale Kushner or it was after games in Capital District. Uh, there was a, a place that the players used to go to, and I know there were a few times I went there with uh, with Dean Ewan after, and uh, and th and I met Dave, and and like I, I I say to him to this day, the one thing I always remember about him is his goofy smile. Now he's a year younger than me, but I just he's always going to be a kid to me. He's always going to be that kid with that smile, and I always remember that, especially with the fact of all the adversity that he went through here on the island. Um, and all the criticism he took. And uh, when I was researching, uh, not this interview, but one of the other interviews um, that honestly I don't even think I've done yet, but um, it was one, uh, after uh, a Capital District DVD that I was watching. And after that, there was some miscellaneous stuff, some Dean Chanel stuff. And uh, I found an old feature that uh, Sports Channel had done on Dave. And it was about him getting called up and this might have been his fourth season or fifth season in the organization. And it was about, you know, how he started out and then he went supposed to go down for two weeks. He ended up staying down for three seasons. And now, we got, now he's getting called up again. And 
the thing that struck me was it was his fifth, fourth or fifth season in the organization, and he was still only 22. And there are a lot of guys whose NHL careers don't start till after 22. And here's this guy, he's like a five-year veteran of pro hockey, and he's still a baby. And he just still had uh, the positive outlook. And I'm sure at that point there was a lot of frustration built up. But he just always had this air of positivity, at least publicly. And, and he does get into the fact that, you know, behind the scenes, there, were, I'm sure there were some internal struggles. But, you know, I, I just, I've always been a fan of Dave. And then after meeting him, uh, you know, just a good guy and everything. And I always wanted to have the opportunity to sit down and chat with him even before I had the idea for the show, just to ask him certain questions about what went on during his career and, you know, give him my opinion on what I thought the issues were and, uh, you know, see what he thought. And I think for the most part, uh, him and I are on the same page. And, um, you know, it, it's just, uh, I'm just glad to have the opportunity now to actually get some of this stuff recorded. And um, Dave doesn't do a lot of interviews. I think he even says it in this one about how it took him a long time to come to terms with some of this stuff. But, um, you know, for those people who today, even if you do a Google search for Dave's name, there's always going to be articles, biggest busts, biggest this, biggest that. Um, you know, get outside the box a little bit and, and think about think about this. Um, here's a guy that, uh, you know, it didn't work out in the NHL for him. Uh, not entirely his fault. I mean, the Islanders are very culpable in all of this. Uh, I honestly believe if Dave, Dave goes back to junior uh, and spends some time in the minors before uh, getting his opportunity with the Islanders, I think we're talking about a much different career, but that's not what happened. Uh, Dave owns his part in, uh, in his career. Uh, the Islanders, hopefully, if it were to ever come up, would own their part. But go to Hockey DB and look at Dave's numbers and look at his stats and... You know, what I see is a guy who, when he went to a team, regardless of the league, and had an opportunity to play, he put up numbers. So people that are calling him a bust and all this other nonsense, look at his numbers when he was given an opportunity to develop and an opportunity to play. He's putting up, he, first of all, he's, he's healthy. For the most part, you look at his numbers, he's playing games, 65 to 80 games in a year. Uh, he's putting up you know, 20 to 40 goals a year, uh, you know, looks like 20 to 40 assists. He had seasons of 83 points, 74 points, 70 points in the IHL and the AHL. And in those seasons, he's putting up triple-digit penalty minutes, including one year with Indianapolis where he scored 74 points, 261 penalty minutes. So he's doing everything. If you're a hockey fan, you know, and sports fan in general, you know, and I guess in life, to be honest with you, it's all about confidence and it's all about having people believe in you. And it's obvious when Dave was in a situation where people believed in him and he was giving it, given an opportunity to develop and to grow and given an opportunity to build his confidence, he delivered. And aside from the hockey aspect of it and his playing career, what Dave has done since retiring uh, with youth hockey and he's... he's been a part of the Kamloops Blazer organization that he uh, played junior hockey with and he was uh, coaching the Delta uh, British Columbia girls team and he was an assistant coach with the Vancouver Giants um, again this is a guy that could have just shunned the game after everything he's been through but he didn't 
and he's there now and he's on the front lines. I mean, Major Junior is a pretty big deal. Vancouver Giants are a pretty big deal. Uh, Sean Byram's kid, Bowen Byram, he came through, is go coming through the Vancouver system. And um, Dave's right there helping him along. So uh, <clears throat> to those of you out there who are still closed-minded about Dave's career, hopefully um, between me stating his case all these years and now actually getting the man to tell his side of the story. I hope you think twice about throwing that bust label around because it's just not the case. If you want to be short-sighted and, and just look at uh, NHL numbers, be my guest. But there's so much more to athletes. There's so much more to humans than what appears on the surface. But I know nowadays there are people who are only interested in numbers. So uh, I hope that um, a lot of you people who want to throw this bust label around on Dave Chizowski, listen to this interview and learn something because I think there's a lot to be learned here. Um, I learned some things in this interview, but uh, more than anything, it was great to reconnect with the person. It was, Dave's always been a cool guy. Just like I said, he's, he's a bit of a goofball. He's, he's, I think he said he's uh, in a text, he's a little fucked up, you know, but in a joking manner. But just what Dave is, is just an honest guy and um, I love him, and it was so great to reconnect and get his story out there. So, um, Dave, if you are listening to this uh, prolonged intro, I really hope I did your story justice, and thank you so much for coming on the show. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the story of Dave Chizowski. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. Today, I am really pleased to uh, have Dave Chizowski as my guest. Dave is someone that I've known for a very long time. He was the second overall pick of the Islanders, and I got to know him uh, a little bit when he was here, and then I got to know him pretty well when he was at Capital District playing with Dean Ewan. Um, I have a lot of questions for Dave that uh, I've wanted to ask him for years, and uh, he's been kind enough to give me some time uh, to answer them. And uh, knowing Dave like I do, I'm pretty sure he's got some pretty awesome stories to tell, too. So, uh, Dave Chizowski, welcome to the Penalty Box. Good morning, Joe. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's great to reconnect with you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, very too long, too long. But I, <laughs> It's close to show you how old we're getting. I know, and it's funny, and I, I told you this, and I'll, I'll tell the people this. At a certain point in my life, maybe four or five years ago, I started calling everyone kid who was younger than me. And when we reconnected, I kept calling you kid. Hey, kid, what's up, kid, kid? And uh, Andrea, who most of you know is my wife, who's a big hockey fan too, she goes, is he even younger than you? And I go, yeah, he's, he's a lot younger than me, right? So uh, she goes, I don't know. She goes, maybe he's younger than you. But So I looked up, and you're less than a year younger than me. But the reason why I kept calling you kid, and, and, and I say this all the time to people, I said, that, you know, one of the things I remember about people are you know their personalities and you know no matter what went on here on the island you are one person that my lasting memory of you is always going to be the goofy 18 year old smile that you had all the time so even though now you're almost 50 and still younger than me but almost 50 um i'm always the one thing i will always remember is the smile uh the big goofy western league kid coming here raw and you always had a smile on your face and it always always made me feel good I'm always I'm you know I always like positivity and everything and you had that smile and that's why I, I kept calling you kid but now I don't do it anymore because you're not that much younger than me <laughs> I, I've, I've aged a bit <laughs> yeah, both of us 
<laughs> I still do. I throw. I still got the same smile. I said, "There's some things I always tell people." I said, "Anybody can grow up and act mature." And I said, "It takes a real man to stay young and a kid his whole life." And that's what I've tried to aspire to do. You know, I think I'm going to use that line because usually <laughs> I just say, you know, I, I get paid, I pay my bills, so I can be immature if I want. But you put it a little exactly. more. The way you phrase it, though, is a little more classy, so I think I'm going to use that. <laughs> That's yeah. So uh, we're going to dive right into your career here. So um, you're actually part of a pretty a pretty extended hockey family. Uh, and we'll talk about um, the, your, your kids later and your nephew later, but... You actually had two older brothers that played pro hockey and that were drafted into the NHL. Uh, I guess your older brother, Ron, was drafted by Hartford in 1983, and uh, your brother, Barry, was drafted three years later by the Rangers. So uh, what was that like, having two older brothers in the sport that uh, that were drafted and played pro? Honestly, it was a, uh, it was a, huge, um, it was a huge help for me because uh, growing up, with brothers that played hockey i was able to lean on them for you know during obviously good times and bad times my dad was a school teacher slash principal and wasn't the you know the biggest athlete but i had two brothers who were what i considered elite athletes and when uh my oldest brother ron went away i remember i was a young you know we were pretty close we're still a close family uh i went away my brother went away to northern michigan university he got drafted by hartford I got to know. I remember. I remember the Whalers sent me a, a Hartford Whalers jersey because Risto Siltman was one of my favorite players back in the old days, uh, and I liked him for a couple reasons. Because one, he had a hard slap shot, and two, he loved to cook. And I, oh, wow. I, I, I love both those things. So uh, I kind of fell in love with with Risto, and he played for the Oilers as I grew up in Edmonton, and my brothers were you know obviously they're kind of my heroes and and you know it was always a dream for me to want to try and play with one of my brothers or play on the same team or play against him and I never had that opportunity and when when they both got drafted and played pro hockey uh I thought this would be something neat that I'd be able to get to do and I never actually did uh I played in an exhibition game with my my middle brother Barry once but that was the the best fit now I play a little bit of men's hockey with him uh, but that's the extent of it. But you know what? They were somebody, and back then we didn't have, you know, long-distance phone calls were quite quite expensive. I remember I got to call my brothers. I'd usually call them about once a week, uh, whether I was in junior or even back when I started on the island. And, and when I wasn't, when things weren't going well, I always could call them and reach out to them. It was a pretty expensive bill back then, and they always made sure they either called me collect or I paid for it. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it was it was something that I've always been able to do and, and lean on my brothers. And uh, I was really close with my older brother, Ron, and then he left to go to Northern. And, you know, we're still quite a close family, but I still, to this day, I talk to my middle brother, Barry, if not every day, every other day, and we, we lean on each other for for not as much hockey advice anymore, but parenting and kids and life and, and business and work. So it hasn't changed over the course of the uh, 50 years we've known each other. So it's 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 something pretty special, and I and I cherish it to have that, uh, that opportunity to be able to have brothers that, that we can uh, help each other. That's awesome, and, and i got to tell you, I'm so glad that you said uh, Risto Silton and then not Ulf Samuelson, because I might have had to hang up on you. So, 
Uh, <laughs> nope, not a chance. Resto all the way. All right, excellent. So uh, I see, uh, you know, in my research, uh, before you played in Kamloops, you played for the St. Albert Saints. And uh, it looks like you, you did very well. The numbers I see are 52 points at 49 games, uh, 114 PIMS. So uh, what was that experience like? You know, I think playing for the Saints was my first... Uh, obviously, it's it's uh, it's an Alberta Junior Hockey League, and it was my first uh, introduction into playing against men. I was 15 years old, and and everybody else in the league, uh, there was myself and Stu Barnes were on the team. We were both 15 years old, and I remember playing against and with guys that were uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, and then there was 20 year olds in the league. And and when you're 15, you don't have a lick of hair on your body, and you're playing against men that have full grown beards jobs we had a guy that was married on our team and it's something that really was a uh is a big eye opener for me because and and back in those days the alberta junior hockey league was pretty tough i remember going into uh different places on the road where it was just mayhem and and it was literally old school hockey and and that's where i started to realize that if i wasn't going to learn how to fight I was going to be out of this game in a long, in short order because of the fact that, you know what, people target guys that were uh, good hockey players, weak hockey players, or timid hockey players, and it was, you're either going to have to fight or you're going to get weeded out of here really fast. And, and then I also started to realize that when I did fight, uh, it gave me a little bit more room on the ice to be able to uh, have a little extra time to try and score goals if, if you know, whether it was... Uh, someone not t- trying to take your head off because they would think, uh, you know, second about it or just prove that, you know what, I'm not going to be this young kid in the league that can't handle anybody. And that's where I kind of, it was my first introduction into it's, uh, it's going to be a little bit tougher now without your mask because you take your cage off in junior, you don't wear a cage. But in midget the year before we had cages on, so you're a little bit more protected and you've got a, you got a little bit of a defense mechanism there where you're not going to get as hurt. Yeah. Um, and then the next season, you moved up to the Western League with the, a really storied franchise, the Kamloops Blazers, and um, you played for Ken Hitchcock there. And I know uh, Hitch is one guy who people either love or hate, depending on the personal experience. Uh, I've heard both sides. What was your uh, experience with Ken Hitchcock like? I, like a lot of guys, loved him and hated him all in the same breath. And, and that's the way he was. You know what? Hitch was a, Hitch was a remarkable coach in... And, and and it's interesting because he had I was I used to go for breakfast with him all the time when he'd get mad at me and I'll never forget he had this philosophy that he tried to create a team that instead of turning on each other they turned on him where collectively everybody hated him and that brought his philosophy in in, in what we thought were was that if I can make everybody hate me, they will play harder for each other and they can take it out on me. And, and he was a big advocate of making practices so hard that the games were easy. And he never, ever, and it was scarier. The more you won, the harder he got because he pushed on the gas. The more we won, if we lost games or if we weren't playing well, he actually would back off a little bit. But the more we won, the less tolerant he was of uh, allowing any type of uh, uh, letting your foot off the gas or making any mistake, because he he wanted to he wanted to make sure that we were playing 60 minutes of our best, cleanest, uh, uh, mistake-free hockey 
all the time. And, and if you slipped for five minutes and you still won the game, that was a big deal for him, and he wanted to make sure that you try to correct it. That's actually... And, and, and you know what? He, he, he was a phenomenal coach, but he, it, like in junior and in pro, he pushes guys so hard that sometimes guys eventually, they, they can't handle it anymore, and they go, enough is enough. I can't, I, this isn't for me. I mean, I think both both things are genius. Where he gets everyone to hate him, you guys become. It's almost like something to bond over. How much you can't stand them. Uh, you're not 100%. at each other's throats. And then, you know, if you're if you're having success and he's pushing you and pushing you, I mean, I, I think both of those are are very very uh, smart things to do. So uh, it they, makes and perfect they were, sense. And, it, and you know what? And it worked. It really did. There was times where we would be like, you know what, if one guy is struggling or two or three guys on the team are struggling, Hitch was so hard on those guys that his teammates felt bad for him and they made sure that they were protecting him and trying to insulate him and help him get through this because that's what, you know what, that's what us, that's what good teammates do, they help each other and, and he was one of those guys, he didn't have, he didn't show favorites, I know he had them, he didn't show them and, and collectively as a team, it, honestly, I always felt it, it brought us together, and, and we we hated him more than we liked him, but <laughs> at the end of the day, you know what, when you're playing hockey and you're having success, winning, uh, scoring goals, winning games, and, and, and coming to the rink every day, knowing you have an opportunity to win is a, is a really neat feeling, because it sucks going the other way when you're not sure if you even have a chance. Wow. Now... As we go along, you'll see most of the questions I'm asking are going to be about you know tough guys and former Islanders, but I have to ask this. So this is your first year in Kamloops, and you're playing with a guy who just would end up being an all-timer. So as a young kid, your first year, what was it like watching a guy like Mark Recchi? <laughs> you know what? Rex was probably the... Um, what's the word quintessential leader and and good guy and he's from he's from uh the, the town i live in Kamloops. he's born and raised here he's a hero here uh he's a hero to a lot of his teammates he's part owner of the blazers organization now uh with with a bunch of other uh, blazer alumni and he is probably one of the best all-time good guys that you'll ever meet in in that he, I struggled and Hitch was hard on me and he'd be the first guy to come to me and I'll never forget him and another guy on our team, Darcy Norton, got drafted by Minnesota back in, I think it was 86 or 87. And Hitch was yelling at me so badly, I was 16 years old and we were playing at this old Memorial Arena in Kamloops and he was yelling, Hitch was screaming at me so loud and when his face goes red and his body shakes, he's a very intimidating man because he's got a lot of wind to throw at you and uh, Hitch Hitch was yelling at me so bad that uh, Rex had to come and calm me down because I started hyperventilating and oh he still we still giggle about it to this day because I was underneath the stands between periods and Rex and Norts were trying to calm me down because I was so scared that I couldn't breathe and I was literally hyperventilating in the hallway I thought I was going to die oh my god yeah, and and Rex still tells the story. It's kind of funny because it's uh, that's just the type of teammate he was, and I don't think you'll have anybody that played with him say he, what type of a guy he was other than an unbelievable teammate, a, a wonderful person. And you know what? Quite frankly, he comes from a really good family. His mom and dad are 
his mom and dad are, are tremendous people. His mom was the type of lady that we'd stop by and Rex wouldn't be there. She'd be like, you know, Ruthie, she'd make up us a bowl of pasta and give you a glass of wine or whatever the case was. They still live in their same house that they've had their entire life, downtown Kamloops. And, and uh, they've hosted a couple Stanley Cup parties there, which have been fun. But they're just real good down-to-earth people. And, and uh, Rex is probably somebody that uh, was a, a guy I did look up to and, and you know, uh, kind of really wanted to, to find a way to get to where he was going to, and that was to play in the National Hockey League like all kids that play junior hockey. Yeah, I'm pretty sure your opinion on him is probably universal. I know uh, uh, Dean Ewan played with him in, in New Westminster, and he talks about him basically the same way. So, uh, so that's no surprise. So, uh, that first year, you had a few fights. Uh, one fight in particular I want to ask you about. Now, I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about it, but he's a guy that was a future teammate of yours uh, and one of the smartest hockey guys in, in the league right now, and that's uh, Kevin Sheveldayoff, who was with Brandon at the time. Do you remember that fight? I do, because he was tough and he was a lefty, and I knew it. And he played hard. He plays as hard on the ice as he thinks off the ice. And, and he has a... Uh, he was a good buddy of mine, and him and Janet and their their family are, are nothing but spectacular people. And I can honestly say that I was as scared shitless in that fight as I was in a lot of my other fights. But he, I'd never, I'd only fought a, a lefty once in in junior uh, before him, and he hit me, and I still have a big scar above my eye because he cut me open for about ten stitches. Oh wow! Because you don't you don't see that left coming if you're not expecting it you don't see it coming and it comes real hard and heavy and chevy was a, a phenomenal left-handed fighter and those guys were really hard to fight and you had to know it and i remember guys even as i got older if, if you knew which way they threw it was a huge advantage going into the fight and if, if you learned how to throw lefts which is something that i tried to learn later on in my career because it, it's a little bit of a um it's a secret weapon when people aren't expecting a left to come at you, so it, it can help you when you're getting the shit beaten out of you. <laughs> <laughs> Which it happened to me often, but I didn't care. I thought black guys were cool, so it didn't matter. <laughs> so we move on to your next year, and I'm going to read your stat line because your your season in 88-89 was just off the charts. So 68 games, 56 goals, 48 assists, 104 points, 139 penalty minutes. So before we get into your season, I'm going to ask you about one of your teammates who uh, I'm sure you have a lot of respect for, who's a friend of mine. I love him, uh, Paul Cruz. Cruiser <laughs> is, he, you know what, Cruiser is a, have you, have you chatted with him? Yeah. Because he is, he has stories after stories, and he has, I have stories with him where, so he, he comes from a small town outside of Canlux in Merritt, British Columbia here, and uh, Cruiser grew up in Merritt. His uh, his dad was part owner of the Centennials, which mm-hmm. was a junior hockey club there. His sister cut hair. He still goes back to Merritt to get his sister to cut his hair because he uh, he if if you know him, he is the biggest hair guy in the world. He <laughs> loves his gels and his mousses, and uh, he's just a phenomenal guy. But he was a young, pale faced kid that came to Kamloops, and he was he was actually he had a a stall next to me in our school and all he asked me every day was who is our tough guy on our team and I'm like Donnie Schmidt but don't fight him he's a boxer and he'll beat the shit out of you and he goes okay so the first practice 
the first practice, Joe, he skates around. He and he in his polite, calm voice, he said, "You want to go?" And Schmidt, he starts laughing. <laughs> We're skating around in warm up. We're just having a practice. And he fights him. And the <laughs> cruiser kicks. The cruiser kicks the shit out of him. Yeah. And now Schmidt's pissed off. <laughs> now he <laughs> wants to fight him again. Cruiser beats him up three times in the first day or two. And I remember our GM at the time, Bob Brown, signed him. And he was our legitimate heavyweight that was the quietest, politest kid that you would ever see. He, Unlike a guy like Bob Probert, like he was not intimidating to look at. Mm-hmm. And he was a wonderfully respectful kid that just politely asked guys if he didn't mind if they didn't mind if he just fought him and beat them up all the time. And then he ended up doing it in the NHL and scoring goals to boot. I think he had close to 20 goals yeah. in Calgary one year. And he's just a, he was another all-time uh, phenomenal teammate and a person. And I still once in a while reach out to him. We still BS if he comes through town here or I see him at certain events. So yeah, he's a, he was an awesome guy. Tough had a great career in the NHL and, and deserved every bit of it. Yeah, no, he's first class all the way, definitely. Um, so I already talked about your stats. I mean, was this, I mean, I, I guess just explain to me, was everything, did everything just seem to click for you this season? I mean, every, I mean, I can't even imagine, not that it, not that it seemed easy. I don't want it to, I don't want it to seem like I'm saying you didn't have to work hard because I'm sure you did, but was this, I guess the one word that I keep thinking of is magical. Like, what was this whole season like in terms of scoring and, and just everything coming together for you? Well, going back to Hitch again, he was the type of coach that wouldn't allow for you to, um, he wouldn't allow for anybody to enjoy any moments or any success it was that day's over, today's a new day, and, and we had a team full of, of high-end players with, you know, Mark Reckie, Darcy Norton, Glenn Mulvana, who played for the Flyers for a bit, Garth Premack was a Minnesota uh, North Stars defenseman draft pick, Donnie Schmidt, uh, drafted by Minnesota. We had Mike Needham, uh, who was my roommate at the time, you know, ended up playing for Pittsburgh mm-hmm. and winning a Stanley Cup. Like we just had Phil Huber, who you know, yeah. Hubes, yeah. played in the minors, scored 50 goals in CDI with us one year. We just had an enormous amount of of talent on the team. And when you, you know, the old saying, hard work or talent beats hard work when hard work doesn't work, talent doesn't work. But at the end of the day, we had a team that had a ton of talent, and then Hitch. Uh, instituted his his work ethic and 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 not laying off the gas with us and we just worked hard every day and we had no choice it wasn't an option it was mandatory and and when you got that amount of skill and you work hard at it uh, that you end up finding success and 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 from my own standpoint I was a kid that could shoot the puck well and and that was my that was my kind of forte back then and it was something that I always took pride in and and shot the puck as often as I could and every once in a while it went in. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Um, I didn't realize actually, obviously, yeah, no, I remember Huber from CDI, but when I was researching uh, your numbers for the story, I didn't realize he had some great seasons down in junior also. Phenomenal. Yeah. 
phenomenal. He he played on a line with Mike Needham, and we called it the Carrot Top line. <laughs> all three of them were redheads. Yeah. And Mike Needham, him, who was redhead, and then another kid from, from Merritt who grew up with Paul Cruz named Cal McGowan. And they were an outstanding line, and I'll never forget it. It was they—they they were probably one of the best lines in junior hockey, and they just had success. They—they they were a great mixture, a great combination of everything. And and Hubes, Hubes would score goals. He'd have three goals in the game, and he wouldn't have one shot on goal. But it'd go off his head, it would go <laughs> off his shin pad, and then it'd hit his stick, and he wouldn't even see it. And that's the type of player he was. He was just phenomenal at being in the right place at the right time. So you had four redheads on one team? You had four <laughs> yeah. gingers? We did. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we did. Uh, so even though you, you had that amazing season, uh, numbers-wise, goals and assists, uh, I noticed you still managed to fight some pretty tough guys that year. Um, and uh, I don't know if you remember any of these. These are probably just some of the bigger names that I saw that, and, on the fights. Uh, Jim Matheson of Regina, uh, Kevin Magunis, and Rob Dumas of Seattle. So any of those fights stand out or any other fights from that season stand out that maybe I don't know? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> Jim Matheson. Yeah. I think Jim Matheson beat the shit out of me. I think Rob Dumas beat the shit out of me. He, Rob was a left-handed fire. Um, Stuart Malgunas, was a, he was just played hard, and he became a buddy of mine. We played on the World Junior team together, um, and he's, he was just a wonderful hard-nosed defenseman that I absolutely admire and he was a tough kid one of the other fights I had was against a, a guy named Pat Bingham yeah and Pat Pat played for New West and the reason I'm telling you this story is because he lived at my billets place and we had young kids in the house who absolutely adored him and he got traded from Kamloops to New West and for whatever reason something happened in the game and he was a pretty tough kid and I beat the living shit out of living shit out of him, mm -hmm. and my billets would not talk to me for months. <laughs> <laughs> I could not believe it how mad they were at me, and they literally almost wanted to kick me out of the house, and it was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. And and then I ended up. I think I played with them later on. That's the problem when you play. You get hit so many times. You can't remember. Uh, I think I might have played with them later on, or I played against them somewhere. But yeah, he, he was a he was a pretty tough kid. He was a left-handed fighter that I knew, and I remember I hit him with some good ones, and, and uh, we had a good fight. And he hit me too, but uh, I think I got the better of him. Now, with a season like this, at what point in the season? To, and, and keep in mind now, this is way before internet, way before um, you know the social media. This is way before anything, so it's pretty much, I guess, just uh, TV and uh, print media. So, at what point in this season does the attention start for the upcoming draft? Ironically, you want to know how it was back then, and this is just absolutely mind blowing. The first time I actually realized that I was going to get drafted was. After the season, because I didn't talk to anybody all year, mm -hmm. I don't remember there being any rankings. After the season, the local newspaper did an article on me um, about my graduation, <laughs> and, and, and there was a little tidbit in it, and I think my mom might still have the article. There was a little tidbit in the end, and, you know talks about the year that I had with the Blazers and, play, and playing hockey and juggling schoolwork. I was the Western Conference Scholastic nomination of the year. 
So they did an article on that. And then at the end it says, oh, and by the way, look for Dave to get drafted in this coming draft. <laughs> and was, <laughs> it was like, it was nothing. And there was no media, there was no social media, there was nothing back then. And, and really it wasn't even something that was in my head at all, all year. I, I remember Hitch yelling at me one time in New West. He made me cry so bad. I was... I was 16 or 17 years old. Oh, I must have been 17 because that was my draft year. And he told me, there isn't a hope in hell I'm getting drafted. So I just <laughs> believed him because when he's frothing at the mouth and screaming at me in the dressing room at the end of a game, then I'm, I'm thinking he's right. I'm not going to get drafted. Yeah. So, so. So, so there was really nothing during the season. I mean, you ended up going second overall, and obviously now, you know, with your with your jobs now, with the coaching and the and the players that you deal with, you know what kind of attention these kids are getting. But literally, you didn't. Really, there was really nothing back then. You ended up going second overall, and really, there was nothing. There was the hockey news. The hockey news, I think, had some type of ratings or rankings. Yeah, they do that every a little year. bit. Yeah. yeah. So the hockey news had the newspaper, and there would have been some articles in that. But mm. at the, at, and you know what? That's another thing that probably Hitch and and a lot of old school coaches they they never they, we were taught to not read your own articles because yeah. it wasn't good. You know, because mm -hmm. and I I learned that later on that yeah. I'm sure we'll chat about that yeah. when, you, when you get so much negative press, you don't want to read anything. I I stayed away from the newspaper. I stayed away from all media because it was nothing but uh, how bad you were, how shitty you were, and how big, you know, and it just goes on and on and on and eventually you go, you know what, I'm not going to watch that movie anymore. I'm yeah, done. yeah. No, I hear you. So, um, how many teams did you end up interviewing with prior to the draft? Quebec was one, Winnipeg was one, and the Islanders were the other. No, Toronto as well. There was four teams because we didn't know. I remember sitting in a room with all four of those teams at obviously at different times, and nobody knew because at the time Matt Sundin was playing in Jurgarden, and they thought he had, you know, those Europeans had army obligations. Mm -hmm. So they weren't sure how long it was going to be able to be before they got the Europeans to come over and play for their teams. Yeah. So I, I actually, we all, all four of us, when we got drafted, had Velcroed names on the back because nobody was sure who was getting picked where. Nobody knew who was going where. I got you. Yeah. Uh, and then what, so you go to the draft, you're, you're there. I mean, do you get the sense that you're going to be picked high? I did once I got to Minnesota because I got interviewed and Donnie Meehan was my agent at the time and I remember him saying this is where we think you're going to go and and I'm like wow you know it was it was surreal because it was so neat for for a young kid to be a part of watching all these GMs you know like Glenn Sather's there who I absolutely adored you know growing up in Edmonton uh, and watching him and I actually sat with his my, my family had season tickets right beside his wife in in Northlands Coliseum and I got to know her and her family and and as a kid I remember you know just idolizing uh, a Glenn Sather because what he was and I got to probably appreciate what he did with that team later on when I started playing pro hockey because it's not easy managing so many uh, egos on the same team as a coach and I thought he did a phenomenal job of it and, and uh, you know found a way to have success because you know as you know not always the the best talent most talented team wins and those guys the Oilers were just phenomenal but I also believe that they were taught by uh, the Islanders in, in how to win hockey games and that's why you're where sometimes you got to lose first to learn how to win and uh, to be able to go to the draft and see Glenn say they're walking around and talking to me and wishing me good luck in the draft was just surreal for me and I thought it was pretty pretty special as a kid 
well, it's probably good that Edmonton didn't pick you then at some point because your head probably would have exploded being up on the stage with him. 100%. <laughs> so so you're sitting in the stands, and all of a sudden they announce your name, New York Islanders select Dave Chizowski. What I mean, what is what are you feeling at the time? You know, you're, you're, you're so excited. I mean, you're shaking, you're nervous. Um, you're fa- I, my family was with me there. I remember my mom bawling, and, and my brothers were all excited, and... It was just something that was was really uh, uh, probably one of the most special moments in 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 my life, and it was the start of something that all kids dream of. And, and you know, I, I said after I wish, I wish every hockey player, good, bad, minor, hockey uh, player, had a chance to play in the NHL because every kid dreams of it, and it's it's just something that it's it's such a it's such a a rush to be able to to get on the ice and play in front of people and play with against people that you grew up watching on TV and idolizing and, and wanting to you know emulate and it, it was just a surreal feeling and it was a the problem that I have with it now is it's almost like it was like a dream because it's such a flash and I remember I remember Pat Flatley and, and Glenn Healy telling me, you know, this doesn't last forever and it comes and goes as quickly as as uh, you can ever imagine. And I realize that now it's it was such a short time in your life because it's not easy. It, it it's it, To me, it's easier to get to the NHL than it is to stay there. Yeah. <laughs> that's no, that's, the that makes sense. Absolutely. You know? and, and that's why I have... I have so much respect for for guys that stay there. I don't care how good or bad they are, and that's where fans don't understand the the sacrifices, the discipline, the hours and the millions of hours that go into and the hard work that goes into preparing to get better to play in the NHL and then to stay there. And you know, I I never celebrated a holiday. You just don't. You eat your healthy food. You work out every day. It becomes a way of life. And uh, I remember when I was done hockey, I always said, I can't wait to have a nine to five job where I go for a beer at five o'clock with my buddies. And, you know, because it doesn't happen. You know, your your lifestyle is so dedicated to, and it's to hockey. And, I, and I'll be the first to admit, my, my family was second. My wife was second all the time. My kids were second all the time. I always put hockey first. And that's something that uh, you're, you're married to your job because it's 24 seven. I remember everybody having, you know, Christmas dinner, and I'm eating my chicken and pasta and 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 and, and veggies, and trying to drink water, and everybody's enjoying the holidays and turkey and stuffing, and you just you know you just don't do it. You don't do that to your body because it, it's such a grind, and it's so important to stay healthy that you uh, you really you become you become a your own self and your own family, and that's where you become married to your job. And you know what? I don't regret it. It was a it was a neat part of my life, and it's something I'll always remember. You had a very busy eighty nine ninety season. Uh, you played in you played four different places. Um, so I think I have the timeline right, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so let's start with the Islanders. So 18-year-old Dave Chizowski, how intimidating was it walking into the locker room at Islanders training camp for the first time? I'll never forget that day. We were in Syosset, and there was a round room where we used to stretch. And Brian Trotche and Pat LaFontaine said something or welcomed me or kind of introduced me to the group before we went on our first ice session. 
and I, it, I, I rem- that was the only thing I remember the day that and I don't remember getting my gear on I don't remember going on the ice but I do remember my first practice and we were scrimmaging uh, and Brad Lauer was on our team and we were in the corner in a scrum and he went to hit the guy and he missed the guy the guy ducked and he hit me and cross checked me right in the mouth and knocked out two of my teeth in my very first ice session so <laughs> it was it was one of those things where and I didn't bother to go down or tell anybody because I'm like I, I you, we're just taught you don't you're not hurt you're never hurt you don't tell anybody you're hurt um, so I didn't say anything and uh, I think I went and got my, my teeth fixed later on in a few weeks but it was just something that it was one of the most surreal days of my life uh, the coolest part I do remember and I'll be honest with you I remember all my sticks you have your name on your sticks and that doesn't happen in junior hockey and I had my name they were blue Sherwood PMPs with orange writing on them and they had my name on them and it was the coolest thing I ever thought in the entire world that's awesome that's awesome. and you, you literally had a welcome to the show moment I mean that is uh, it was that and that is it and you know what kids don't have that these days yeah because by the time they get to the NHL they have all their sticks in their names in junior they get all their bags with their names track suits everything yeah. their stalls have names on them and when they get to the NHL it's it's just normal yeah. And back then, it was that was the cool part of, of, of turning pro, is you got your name on your sticks, and you got your name above your stall, and this is, this is real. That's tremendous. So, um, you go through training camp. How did you find out that you had made the team? I didn't. Uh, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. So, I stayed there. I didn't expect to stay there, but I remember... Uh, everybody telling me, you're going to probably stay for a bit, then they're going to send you back to junior. And I remember... Um, if it was Bill Torrey, I think, or even Lauren Henning came in and said, uh, get your car shipped out, we're keeping you. And I remember Dean Chanel's dad, who was the commissioner of the Western Hockey League, and Hitch and Bob Brown, my coach and GM in Kamloops, kept calling Bill Torrey, asking them to send me back, send me back, because I didn't play a whole lot. I only played 34 games my first year, yeah. and there was a lot of games where I'd get, I looked at some tapes <laughs> about 10 years ago, I thought, where I'd get one or two shifts in a game. And I'm like, how are you supposed to score goals when you only get one or two shifts in a game? I think the most important thing for a kid and uh, in anything, not just hockey, is, is getting ice time and getting that opportunity to do whatever they're trying to do, more of it. Mm-hmm. And you can't get better at something when you don't get ice time. You can't get better at learning how to play the guitar if you don't play the guitar. And you know what? Uh, there was a lot of practices where I was a black ace and I wouldn't participate in practice. Then I would get bag skated at the end of practice and then I wouldn't play for a few games. And it's real tough to get better and, and it's real hard to uh, to improve when you're not getting ice time. And, and ice time is the most important thing. And I look back and I remember talking to GMs after when I was trying to get jobs and I was actually kind of acting as an agent as well is that you the, the most important thing for kids is to get better and, and I wish I'd gone back to junior that year I would have played 35 40 minutes a game and I would have got ice time and, and I'm a big believer Mike Badano went back his 18 year old year played a ton and you just get that extra year of hockey where you where you continue to improve on your skills and things you need to work on that you know you're going to need to get better at in the NHL. And the one thing I didn't do well is play in my own end because I didn't have to in junior. Yeah. And and I don't ever remember Hitch explaining to me 
how to play in my own end. His thing was get the puck, shoot it, and go line up at center ice. And that's what I did. <laughs> you know, I was... So re- no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, realistically, there was so many things that I needed to work on. And you realize that you work on things your entire pro career, even at your last day of practice before your last game, you're still trying to do things a little bit better every day. Yeah. And that was one thing that I could have used as another year, possibly two in junior. I wasn't a great skater. I was kind of a shitty skater that that worked really hard because I liked to score goals. I worked hard when I got the puck, so I could get to the other end to score goals. You know, it's selective. It's like selective hearing when you're married. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know all about that. <laughs> <laughs> so does my wife, actually. Exactly. So, so no, I. I mean, that's one thing I've always said. Where I was obviously um, loved having you here, but uh, I, I always thought, and I, and I'm not obviously it doesn't make me a brain surgeon. Um, you definitely should have should have gone back to junior. Now, um, one other thing that happened that year, which was sort of cringy, even before cringy was a term, when you first started with the team, you had number 89. And then they switched you to number nine, which is probably, I mean, that's a, a pretty big <laughs> weight to wear on the eye. I mean, I, I was thinking there are fewer numbers that you can give an 18-year-old to put more pressure on him than uh, Clark <laughs> Gillies, number nine. Um, how did that happen? <sighs> so I started with 89. There was two guys in the league that had 89. Myself and Alexander McGillney. Yeah. And Alexander McGillney in, in Buffalo was a young kid who I played against in the World Juniors. Play, no, I played against him when we were in a younger tournament somewhere, and I can't remember where. And he was a phenomenal player, completely different from me. He skated fast, he had good hands, and he was a good hockey player. Um, I I wore 89. I was one of those kids. I remember everybody said, shut up, go to camp, don't say anything to anybody, and just work hard. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of a, you know, back then a cocky, mouthy little kid. And, and you know, I I tried to keep my mouth shut when, when I could, but every once in a while I, I said something. And I'm, I remember saying to John Doolin, our trainer at the time, I'm like, no, sorry, it was Jim Pickard. Yeah. Pick, God rest his soul. Yeah. Uh, he... He said to me in, in Jimmy Pickard fashion, he said, Chizzer, I don't think you should wear the same number as that fucking Russian in Buffalo. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Pick, I'll, whatever you want. He goes, I'm going to call Clarkie and see if we can get a number for you. And, and, and I knew who Clark Gillies was, and I had... I had probably one of those love-hate relationships with him because I watched him beat up on my Oilers as a kid all the time. Yeah, I love and that. I, I remember, uh, I remember Pick telling, telling me, he says, Clark, he gave me permission to let you wear his number. And I thought, okay, that's cool. I, I Honestly, I felt a little bit uncomfortable wearing the number 89 because as, as everybody knew back then, there was only a few guys in the league that had the high numbers like 99 and you know, those numbers, and, and I would never in a hundred million years wear a number 99 because of, you know, where I put Wayne Gretzky on a pedestal, and and, yeah. and to have 89, I'm like, I don't think I'm that good, and, and you know what, as cocky as I was, I never thought I was a good hockey player, and that's probably one of my biggest downfalls, is I never believed I was that good, and I always 
when I was there, I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. I'm not that good. <laughs> and I remember wearing number nine, and then it all happened. I didn't have the success that I I would have loved to have had. The team would have loved me to have had, and probably Clarkie would have loved me to have had wearing that number. Yeah. And I started getting hate mail and death threats, wow. and I had people starting to call my house and threaten me. And I'm 18 years old. I remember uh, I lived with Mick Vakoda and Richie Pilon, and I remember uh, I remember them coming downstairs some nights with baseball bats and sticks, making sure I was okay because I was scared shitless, and and I couldn't believe what was happening in terms of people threatening me. He told me, you know, get your disgrace to that fucking number, and I'm like, hey, you know what? I got, I'm just a kid. And and these are they were like letters. They were handwritten letters out. And they'd sign their names on them, and, and, and I'd be like, okay, this is nuts. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a kid coming from a small town, which I thought in Edmonton, and I moved to New York, and I'm getting these death threats. And it, it, it wasn't just for the first year. It was for years to come. It got worse and worse. The shittier I got, the more letters I got. Oh <laughs> I'm like, God. okay, this isn't, this isn't very good. So, wow. you know what, that was really hard, and, and, and I, I was the most appreciative and respectful uh, person to be able to have the opportunity to wear Clarkie's number. And in hindsight, I wish I didn't because it probably was the wrong thing to do for a young kid. And I wouldn't do that to a young kid. I, I would have, you know, tried to find another number. You know, I, I just, I think that it, it, it really affected me probably mentally more than anything um, and then I started second guessing how, you know, maybe I am shitty. Maybe I am a dis, you know, disgrace to this number. And I just never could find my niche there. And, and it was something that I, you know, I wished I did something different. I always look back and I, you know what, I, I didn't, I don't want to say I blame the Islanders because I hate, it doesn't help blaming anybody. But at the end of the day, there's probably something I could have done different to be a better hockey player and I uh, I don't know if it was working out you know working out off the ice back then wasn't a big thing yeah. and I probably could have worked on my, my leg strength to become a better skater uh, but I guess I didn't see it or envision it at a young age like that when you're 18 and 19 you're, you know you're, we're not always the smartest kids when we're that age but yeah. I was and, and I should have did something different to to become better and I didn't and that's my fault that's fucking terrifying, dude. I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm getting chills thinking about you just going to the mailbox and getting these fucking letters from these lunatics mad about a uniform number. I love <laughs> I love Clark Gillies as much as anybody here on Long Island. And I actually, when it happened, I wasn't mad. I, I, I remember going, oh, man, this isn't good, you know. But never, ever in my life thought you were going to get, I mean, the sort of thing you're telling me about, that's that's terrifying. I on behalf of Long Island, I apologize. Jesus, that's uh, fucking crazy. crazy. You know what? It's uh, honestly, I get, I get how our fans are passionate. I, I've got buddies that are passionate about hockey, football, golf, and and you know what? That's the uniqueness of, of sport. It, it it brings out passion, and that's what fans are. They're they're fanatics, yeah. and I get it. There's a you know what? Uh, you because here's the other side of it there wasn't a better hockey game to play in. I don't care what place we were in, but Ranger Islander games were absolutely... I couldn't sleep in the afternoon of a Ranger Islander game because I was so excited to hear the fans go berserk on each other. Yeah. 
and and it was I still remember the chance if you know the Rangers suck clap your hands <laughs> yep. and then the, the then the Rangers would be yelling they'd be chanting last place yep. <laughs> like it's it's in my head forever and it was unbelievable how passionate they were and, and you know what I'm not going to take that away from anybody because your emotions hey I'm an emotional guy when somebody did something to you on the ice when your heart beats going 220 beats per minute you do goofy things you might cross check somebody in the face you get into a fight you do stupid things it's not easy to make rash decisions when your heart's going 180 190 beats per minute and something happens in the blink of an eye and and that's the that's the part of sport that people don't understand and you know what people also players also forget that that fans become emotionally involved as well and and it's crazy because you know and, and at the end of the day i always had a buddy tell me they pay their 20 bucks to come to the game or 50 bucks they can say whatever they want and and you know what i, I was all in favor of that because you know there was old saying you're yelling at me but you're paying to come and watch me play hockey I, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me so <laughs> i know but <laughs> yeah. th- dude just the thought of someone actually and, and not someone multiple people putting pen to paper sending you these nasty letters is it's fucking enraging dude i, I really you know, it's, it's crazy I, I, at, i'm sorry how to go through that cold. at first i thought there were jokes joe yeah. i'm like hey this isn't for real is this and yeah. then and then i was scared to share them with people because i'm like i better not start anything here or get myself in trouble so i just hid them and i think i went and burnt them Ooh. i lived with pat and warren amandola who were the best entire people on long island i've ever met and mm-hmm. the, and and they were my billets, and I remember I think we had a fire pit in the back, and I think I started burning them out there, and uh, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't. Uh, I remember one guy telling me how disgraceful I was, yet he, in the same letter, gives me a picture of Pat Lafontaine and says, "Can you get Pat Lafontaine to sign this for me?" <laughs> that I mean, that's so typical. Jesus Christ! <laughs> like, I actually thought it was funny. I'm like, yeah. I'll, how stupid are oh, these people? <laughs> so let's talk about a few good things that happened that first year. So um, your first NHL game was in Minnesota, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so when you find what? when you find out you're playing, um, what what is that like? What's that day like? Did, did you find out after the morning skate that you knew you're in, and did you have to try to take a nap? And and what was that whole experience like? It, I, it was interesting because I actually signed and got offered my, my my contract that morning. And we're in Minnesota. I remember Donnie Meehan calling me and telling me what I got. He explained to me it was... Uh, and it, and it, you know what? And I, I think it's it's unbelievable because the, the difference in today and back then is just... It's ludicrous amount of money. But at the time, I thought it was great. I got a $200,000 signing bonus, which after taxes in the state of New York, I think I ended up getting about fifty-seven grand. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about and then, right. <laughs> and then my fr- it was a three-year deal at like ninety grand a year or ninety-five grand a year, and I was the happiest kid in the entire world or in the entire universe at the time. And I remember Donnie calling me and telling me my contract. It was the same as, or a little bit different or similar to. Mike Medano's and Trevor Linden's the year before when they got picked first and second overall 
and I did not give two shits about the contract. <laughs> yeah. I was there to play hockey because you, you think about it. We're, we play hockey for free our whole life. I'm, I'm not. I don't look at it as a business or, or or that's my job. And no, I want more money. It was. I was so excited to play hockey, and I remember uh, I didn't sleep that afternoon to yeah. answer your question. <laughs> and 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 I remember. Uh, I think I got an assist that night on Doug Crossman's goal. On Doug Crossman's goal, and the best part of it was, uh, I took a shot, missed the net, and then Cross put it in. I think on the back door, and that was my assist. There you go. Yeah, and then, and, and oh. it was in the building that I got drafted in, uh, which was in Minneapolis. Oh yeah, the, yeah. Uh, it was the same building, which was kind of neat because it was the same building that I had got drafted in that summer, and uh, and it was, uh, I guess, it was just, it was a special, it was a special first game, which was kind of cool. That, oh, yeah, I didn't even put the connection together. That is awesome. That's excellent. Yeah. And then a few nights later, you play your first game at the Coliseum against a team you're all too familiar with, the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, what was your first game, going into the game, playing your first home game, uh, what was that like? And then talk about uh, the experience of scoring your first NHL goal. It was, uh, I, I was really excited because I got to play against... You know, Mark Messier was probably my my hero and all time favorite player. I, I he was a player that I tried to play like. Uh, he turned out a little better than me, but that's, yeah. that's neither here nor there. Well, you didn't get your elbows high enough either. So. <laughs> I did. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know what? It was it was it was one of those games where everything was going into any every game was special for me. Still at that point, I mean, I still probably it was surreal. I was playing in the NHL. And then the Oilers come to town and, and playing against Gretzky Curry and, you know, Kevin Lowe. Uh, Kevin Lowe's from this area here, and I got to know him a little bit, skate with him in the summertime at the time, and he's just a, an absolutely phenomenal person. And to be able to play against these guys was really special to me. Um, Glenn Anderson, who, who owned a cell company city, a cell phone company in Edmonton, I bought my first cell phone off of. I remember it. Caught, I think it was like four, fourteen hundred bucks. It was a car phone that went in my car, and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And to play against these guys was pretty neat, pretty special. And um, I remember, I believe it was a five-on-three in the second period, if I remember correctly. And and I got. Al put me out, which was shocking. I got to put on the power play, and I remember getting a cross-ice feed from, I think it was either from Flats or Patty Lafontaine, and I, I I shot the puck, and it went in on Billy Ranford, who I've, I've known now for the last 35 years. I, I ended up billeting his nephew here, and, and nice. Billy was a, was, is a wonderful man. I think he's a goalie coach for the Kings now. Okay. And I remember scoring on him, and it was like it was yesterday because it was one of those goals where I scored a ton of in junior but I I didn't think I was going to be good enough to score them in pro and I did and it was pretty uh to score my first NHL goal against the Oilers was pretty neat what yeah there's there's a guy that you just mentioned who I I love and everybody that knows knows that uh you know obviously I'm a fan of the fighters I'm a fan of the enforcers and there's one guy though that was an Islander that is one of my all-time favorite Islanders, and that's Patty LaFontaine. Uh, what, how, how amazing was that, being on the ice with someone like that and seeing him in practice? And just, I know he's one of the all-time nicest guys, too, just seeing the way that he would treat people. He's a phenomenal guy. He, w- he was super nice. Uh, I remember 
I went to his place for dinner and training camp and, and Mary Beth, uh, his wife uh, had made me dinner and he's just a, he's a polite, he was a polite, phenomenal, uh, young man who really took me under his wing a little bit. Him and Brian Trotchy were great. Everybody was great to me. I got treated phenomenal by the player. My teammates were, uh, exceptional in, in how they treated me coming in, uh, except for Dale Kushner. We'll talk about Kush later. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, excellent. So, and Kush was a buddy of mine. Yeah. But anyhow, Patty was a you know what he was a phenomenal man. The one thing I loved, and I remember playing with him in tr- my first training camp. The only thing he told me to do is shoot the puck as hard as I can off the glass because he was so fast. He'd blow the zone, get the puck on a breakaway, and he'd score. Yeah. And I think that's why I had a little bit of success in, in training camp and exhibition that year because that's all I did was give him the puck and it's easy to get points when you give him the puck. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a pretty special player. The way he could skate and and the way he could actually, he, he would switch hands when he was driving the net sometimes to go from his backhand. He'd actually switch hands so he was still on his forehand, but he was pretty good at, uh, at a lot of things. But I remember him being able to do that, which was kind of neat. Uh, there was a game in Pittsburgh. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, you were in front of the net. There was a scrum, and uh, you got your stick on Mario Lemieux in a pretty sensitive area for a man. Um, and then there was the scrum ensued, and then he grabbed you. And uh, once everything was broken up, the two of you seemed to be having a conversation. You seemed not angry. Kind of seemed like okay, what like matter of factly about it, but it was a little animated. Do you remember that? I do remember it, I, and I think someone came after me after, but uh, I remember playing against him a lot because I played with Pat Flatley and Brent Sutter, and, and we were considered the, well, they were the defensive specialists, and I think Al put me with him because they were, he was trying to insulate me because I wasn't very good in my own end, and, mm-hmm. and I remember playing against Mario a lot, and, and it wasn't Mario I was always worried about, it was Paul Coffey on defense because as soon as you took your eyes off him, he was gone. Uh, you know, sneaking past you in your own end, and and he was such a powerful skater. He was hard to stay with. You're such and, an Oilers but, homer, man. You are such an <laughs> Oilers homer. I am. <laughs> and the funny part of Mario was he pushed me, and I think he called me a kid and told me to get out of here. And 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 I just reactively, I just I I think I told him I go fuck you. You know the <laughs> typical reply. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I probably shit my pants at the time, going, okay, maybe you shouldn't be talking to Mario Lemieux like this. <laughs> and uh, uh, but it was just one of those things where that's where I, I think the outside arrogant cocky kid came out yet deep down inside I was scared shitless <laughs> and I'm like don't don't say it but I said it and I probably pushed him back and I was uh, at the time I would have been waiting for somebody to come knowing full well that somebody was coming I would have been on high alert my my spider senses would have been tingling because I would, would have been expecting someone to come after me uh, nobody came after you that game, but later in the year, your first, uh, technically your first NHL fight, it didn't really amount to anything, uh, was a teammate of Mario's, Bob Airy, and uh, I believe that was at the Coliseum, and it was kind of a wrestling match, he took you down. Um, but as you had mentioned earlier about when you started fighting in junior, about that being one part of your game, uh, that would make you more valuable and how you have to defend yourself. Uh, on a certain level, was it, was it good to get the first NHL fight out of your system? It was. It's always good to get that out of your system because, you know what, like anything, it's it's fun to play your first game. It's fun to get your first assist. It's fun to get into your first, uh, you know, fight. It just, it's something that in junior, I, I used it as a tool for, for being able to try and play offensively, but in pro, 
I think it was more important. And I remember the fight with Bob Arian, and it wasn't a, I don't think I was proving anything. I think just him and I were battling. Yeah. He worked as hard as anybody. And, and you know yeah. what, anytime you play against somebody that works that hard, eventually you're going to piss somebody off. Yeah. And, and when you were so relentless and you work and you battle, and he wasn't a big guy, but he battled so hard, he probably we just got into a confrontation and battled and, and dropped the mitts. It wasn't, he wasn't protecting somebody or sticking up for them. I wasn't doing anything on my behalf. It was one of those, for me, one of the best hockey fights is when you're you're in a combat and you're you're battling and all of a sudden you piss each other off and you go, fuck it, let's just fight. Yeah. And that's the part, that's the part of hockey fights that I really like. You know, some of the staged ones are a little different or mm-hmm. you got to do it for, it, it, it you know, there's, there's a, I guess there's all different types, but that was just one of those fights where we were battling and we ended up fighting. And I didn't care. I never cared if I won or lost fights. I didn't care if I was fighting a bigger or smaller guy. It was a fight. If we're going to do this, let's go. And that was it. Uh, now, when the Island, I guess it was when the Islander season ended, did you go first to Springfield or back to Kamloops first? You want to know where we went? Okay. Dean Chenoweth and I drove straight to Montana and went skiing. Well, get out of here. <laughs> and the funny part was, is the first year, I remember we had, we were going into it, if I remember this correctly, we were going into New Jersey for our last game of the year, last uh, regular season game. We knew we didn't make the playoffs. And I remember somebody telling me at the time that we were going to have, we were doing testing. We were going to get uh, off-ice testing. We were done before we all went home. <laughs> I remember <laughs> Wayne McBean took a slap shot and hit me in the knee and I could not walk and I was swollen for about a week and I didn't participate in the off-ice testing which I thought was great because Mm -hmm. I didn't have to do the wind gate and the VO2 max and all the stuff that we do in training camp so I didn't have to do any of that stuff and then I packed up we packed up our stuff and Chinny and I drove straight to uh, straight to uh, he has a place in Kalispell, Montana, and we went and skied at I think it's called Big White or uh, Big Mountain or something. And we spent about a week there and had the time of our life, and uh, it was something that was really cool. So that, that that's the part of the end of the year that I remember. We were down and mad. The season was over, but we drove straight to Montana and went skiing. And then, how did you end up in Springfield? Springy, Springy, I was there for stints. I didn't oh, play. Okay. I was there for stints. So if I wasn't playing games, they would send me down for conditioning. I got you. And, and you could only go down, I think, for two weeks at a time. So mm-hmm. I would go down to Springy for, for conditioning stints. Okay. But yeah. you were there. Were you there for the playoffs, though, when they won nope. the Calder Cup? Nope. No, nope, I wasn't. Which, you know what, in hindsight, I, I don't know why I wouldn't have got sent down there to get ice time and more experience which blows my mind because as a young kid that only played 34 games and some I only had one shift in a game I don't know why they I wouldn't get sent down there for conditioning and to get more experience and play in some games yeah you know that that was the part that's the part of me now that I look back and I'm just baffled at how that decision came to let an 18 year old kid who could have played 82 games in junior that played 34 in the NHL limited uh, ice time doesn't go back and play in the minors and get more experience to become a better hockey player for the team. And that's the part that's absolutely mind-blowing to me. 
and you did go back to Kamloops though eventually, correct? I, I, you know what I did? Sorry, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> I went back to Cam. You know what I did? I went back to Kamloops my first year. It was the second year we drove to Montana. Okay. See, I am punch drunk. <laughs> uh, All right. I went back to Kamloops to play in the Memorial Cup. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. My first year in New York, I got sent back. You want to know when I got sent back? Yeah. April first. April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day. Uh -huh. I remember going in. We were the, the the Islanders were starting. We were start. I participated in a pregame skate. We were starting the first round against the Rangers, I mm -hmm. believe. Okay. And I was told. Uh, I remember Lauren Henning called me into the office and said, "You're going back to junior." Okay. And I was so excited. Yeah. I was so excited, Joe, because I got. I knew I was going to go play, and I was going to get ice time. And, and we got. I go back to Kamloops. I think I played a couple regular season games, and then we played in the playoffs. And then we went to the Memorial Cup that year in Hamilton and lost to Eric Lindros and the Oshawa Generals. Ian Fraser too. Yeah. On that team. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you go back to Kamloops. You play four games. You, I mean, four games, five goals, uh, seventy penalty minutes. Reunited with Paul Cruz. Um, yeah. And then the playoffs start. You had seventeen points in seventeen games. Um, and then Memorial Cup, you scored seven points in three games. And I know it's not about individual stuff, but, I mean, it's like you jumped right back in. And then, uh, well, you brought him up. So Lindros in Oshawa was, I mean, he's a machine no matter what. But playing against kids, I mean, what was that like playing against a guy like Eric Lindros, his size, his speed at that time? It, well, he was a man amongst boys. And, yeah. and it's a funny story because him and I ended up kind of getting to a little bit of a, a pissing match where – they were beating us and at the end of the near the end of the game i remember cross-checking him into the boards i got kicked out i think i got a five minute major and he wrote something in one of his books and he said i'll, I'll never forget it's in one of his books and i can't remember what it was and i kind of chuckled I, i'm a little bit of a smart ass and i yeah. thought it was kind of funny so he says how he wants to get me back and I'll never forget a few years later I'm playing in new we're pl playing with the Islanders and we're in Toronto and Lindros has an article in the Toronto Sun I believe and it, they brought this up that it said and I just got called back up <laughs> and he said in the paper that I remember the reporter asking me so you know you and Eric Lindros had this little tiff in junior cross-checked him and he says in his book he wants to get you back and I said, well, that's fine and dandy, but he's going to have to get sent down to the minors to get me back. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was written somewhere. And I'm like, okay, I'm not in the NHL anymore. I'm not that good. So you're going to have to get sent down. <laughs> that was that. And what do you say to that? That was a classic line. It was pretty mm -hmm. funny. I thought it was pretty funny. That was I a good one. Funny. <laughs> well, that was a good one for sure. Yeah, exactly. And I think we remember reading it in the Toronto Sun, and I thought, ah, that's good. I normally say <laughs> stupid things. But that was a good one. Uh, yeah. So after Memorial Cup, is that when you went to World Juniors? We World Juniors was that year. That was the same year. Is it Christmas yeah. time that year? Yeah. The Islanders oh, let okay. me go. Yeah. The Islanders let me go the first year, which is crazy because I could have went back the second year when I was back in New York. Yeah. And I wasn't even playing in games, and they still wouldn't let me go. And I again, mm -hmm. mind blowing because they're such unique experiences. And when you're 18, 19 
and you have an opportunity to go play in the World Juniors in that tournament, mm-hmm. it makes you better. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. And I went and had some success. We won the gold medal. I was fortunate enough to play with some phenomenal hockey players, including Eric. Yeah. And uh, you know what? It was something that I still to this day cherish as one of my most memorable times in my life from a hockey standpoint because it's one of the few times where I had some success and and got to play like I did when I was a kid and have fun and enjoy it. And you were team captain? I was lucky enough to be uh, named the team captain. Mike Ricci was also captain. Uh, Dan Ratushny. Yeah. Uh, who else did we have? We, we just had a phenomenal team. Yeah. We were we were outstanding. We we I still to this day get to see some of those guys once in a while. I saw Stephen Rice uh, a few years ago in a in a hockey Canada event that we get invited back to. So it, it's pretty neat. Um, Mike Needham was on that team. A lot of lot of special uh, lot of special players. We had two best goalie duo in the history of I think World Junior and Stefan Facet and Trevor Kidd. That's not bad. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a lot of fun. So uh, Re- Mike Ricci played with an, uh, a separated shoulder the entire tournament. Wow. That, yeah. Well, that's, was a, that makes sense. That's the kind of player yeah. he is. So definitely, he, makes you sense. know what? He was a he was a phenomenal, phenomenal man. Uh, now you go into next season. I already know what you did at the end of the season, so we don't need to talk about that. But let's go back <laughs> to the beginning of the season. Uh, you're going into your second training camp now. Um, I don't know how you – I mean, you played a lot of hockey the year before, not necessarily with the Islanders, but, you know, World Juniors and uh, going back from Memorial Cup. Uh, and I don't know how you viewed that first season as a whole at, at that time, but when you were going into your second camp now, uh, what's the mindset going into that camp? Well, interesting enough, I remember in the summertime, you know, we, we kept in touch, obviously, with coaches. I remember, I remember Lauren Henning always being a, uh, an ear for me, and, and I was able to lean on him, and he, I always got to talk to him. And I remember him calling me in the summertime at one point because I was kind of unsure, do I drive to camp or do I fly? Does this mean <laughs> I'm going to stay there? or what, what? I could still get sent back to junior, yeah. really. <laughs> so Lorne calls me and says, Pack up your truck, pack up your car, and drive to to Long Island. You're staying for the. Already told me this in the summertime, so you know what that was a little bit of a, a kind of a motivational thing for me, and I, uh, I you know I appreciated that because I I wasn't worried. I just had I was able to focus on obviously getting stronger in the summer, and also coming to camp and just being able to play and not trying to let any outside distractions bother me and. And I believe I played about, I think I played 50-some games that year. 56. Like 56 games. And I, and, I, and I didn't, I mean, obviously my, my offensive production, I just, I couldn't. And there were some games where I was really good and I offensively, I'd have six, seven, eight shots on goal. And, and that's the one thing. I mean, it, the NHL is a pretty good league. It's hard to be consistent. And that's the most important thing. If, if you can't be consistent then you're not going to stick around in the league. And that's the reality of it. I just couldn't find, and I, I can't, I won't even blame anybody for it anymore. I didn't find a way to be more consistent in scoring goals and trying to put myself in a better position to, to shoot the puck, which was my strength. And you know what? It's my fault. And and I have a lot of regrets in, in that I, I wished I tried to figure out a way to stay there and be more consistent and be more offensive, which I thought I was capable of. I think what a lot of people don't realize is, 
first of all, in your case, you're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid, and I think anyone that is critical of you in terms of calling you a bust or whatever it is, I think anyone, before they say that, should go, where was I at 18, where was I at 19? And then put picture where you were, you're probably in school, maybe you started a, a job that wasn't everything, and now picture you being on, on the world stage. You're, you're, everything you do is now, on, is now televised, you're up for scrutiny, and that's gotta be, uh, and now for, now for you personally, your last year in Kamloops, you couldn't do anything wrong. And now you played one season pro, you're going into your second season, and like you said, your offensive production wasn't there. I can't even imagine the psychological toll that must have taken on you in terms of what am I doing wrong? I can't do anything right. Exactly, Joe. And, and the funny part is I look back and I go, you know what? I had <laughs> I had nine, eight or nine goals. I can't remember eight. my first year. Yeah. And, but I had them all before Christmas. I scored them all. And I think I scored eight or eight goals in like my first 20 games mm-hmm. or 25 games. And then I came back from World Juniors and I didn't play a game for the first month I sat I was a healthy scratch every game mm. and then my second year I'm I'm not finding any success to start the year and I'm like oh god am I having that uh, sophomore jinx yeah. am I am I what am I doing so then what do I do I start fighting and I know where I remember I'm like if I can't score goals I was always a believer I have to try and help my team somehow and I decided I have to fight and 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 then I started getting into some fights here and there. And I remember, I remember fighting Troy Crowder in an exhibition game. I think it was that year. Twice you fought him. And you know what the funny part was? He was like, I think after I fought him the second, I did I did well enough that I didn't get carried off on a stretcher, which to me is a a success. That's and a win. The next week, the next week, Joe he beats up he beats up. I think he beat up Probert. And then he beat up uh, Tony Twist, and then he beat up like Jeff Chicker, and he beat up three heavyweights in the league. And there was an article in the paper. And it said something in the news. I remember doing an article in the, uh, or doing an interview in the in the sports uh, the sports news, or the hockey news. And they asked me about the fight with Chicker and I, and I, or with uh, part of me with Troy Crowder. And I said, well, I hope he doesn't want to fight again because I'm leaving it like that. Because you know what, he just beat three heavyweights up, and I was lucky. And he was a he was a pretty tough guy. He was a he was a specimen because he was so he was like six five, six six. And as all as I remember, is holding on for dear life and trying to throw as hard of a punch as I possibly could. And uh, and then I thought, well, I think that's it. I'm not going to give him an opportunity to fight me again. Yeah, I, I saw I saw the second fight. I saw the fight at the Coliseum, and you did survive that. I'll, I'll give you that. You survived, survived it. Survived. I didn't exactly. see the fight at the Meadowlands, and yeah, that was Crowder's monster year. So, yes. uh, so you picked the absolute worst time to fight, basically King Kong. So, uh, but at least, yeah. but at least he wasn't. It was still in the preseason, so he wasn't you know full game mode yet. But uh, exactly, I still caught him when he was probably out of shape. Yeah, <laughs> and then am I am I correct? You also fought another Crowder. Did you fight Keith Crowder of the Kings Keith in the preseason? Crowder? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. I don't you, know why. I, I had two Crowders. Like it was in, within a month. Very different fighters, too. But well, <laughs> yeah, Keith Crowder, nothing against him, and I'm sure he'll agree. That's a lot safer fight. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was the thing is, is I, you know what, if I wasn't going to score goals, 
um, I actually found that when I fought, I got more ice time. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. ironic because the more I fought, the more ice time I got. I'm like, you know what? I, I got to find a way. And, and then then what happens is you get in that mindset. Then I'm playing on the third and fourth line. I'm not. The only thing I'm worried about is who, is I, who am I going to fight? Who can I fight? And at the end of the day, you know what? It, my offense was lacking and and getting probably worse and worse and my my confidence was getting worse and worse and as all as i thought was i was going to be a you know in those days we were third fourth line fighter and that's all i did and that's all i was good enough to do your next fight unofficially was in edmonton um against uh if, if i'm not mistaken this might have been your next fight it was against someone that uh you lived with and someone who Islander fans are familiar with, and you were wearing the same uniform, uh, Nick Vakoda. How did that happen? I loved it. <laughs> it was it was probably one of my favorite moments with one of my buddies, him and him and Jeff uh, Dean Chanel, Mick Vakoda, and Richie Pilon and myself were pretty close. Yeah. And I lived with Mick and Richie, and and I lived with them at the time. And I remember we lost to Edmonton the night before, and. Uh, we got in trouble and we were getting bag skated and um, and we were getting bag skated so we're doing laps and we're dead tired and last person always had to do it again well because I was a shitty skater and Mick was a little better than me he, be- <laughs> he was beating me I was sorry I was beating him but he was going to catch me because I was getting tired I'll never forget this we go around the net the far end and from where we started and i pulled the net so that when he comes around the corner it hits him oh and he and he goes flying into the corner and into the boards Mm. he joe he takes his helmet off and his gloves (laughs) so i finish the skate i go to the far end i'm on my knees panting and 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 gap i'm just trying to catch my breath i look up and Mick's coming down the ice, no stick in his hand, the gloves are already <laughs> off, and he's got his helmet off. And he says, yells at me, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. He says, Chizzer, you want to fuck around? Let's fuck around. So he, <laughs> he, he's dead tired. So if you saw this on video, it probably would have been one of the funnest, funniest fights you'll ever see. And I'm still on my stick and knee, and I'm looking at him, I'm going, Okay, fuck, we're going to do this. Just give me a minute to catch my breath. He's lethargic and coming at me. He's dead tired. Like, we've been getting bagged for a half an hour, 45 yeah. minutes straight. And I slowly take my gloves off and get up, and we fought. We had a good fight, but we were so tired. And it was at the end, it was like we were throwing muffins at each other. And... I think, for the record, I beat him up, but he oh. might think different. Okay, <laughs> old, old Marinko. <laughs> and uh, you know what? It was just one of those things that it just happened. If you pissed each other off in practice, you, we we had fights. We fought all the time. Everybody fought. I remember there was fights before practice started, and then we would start practice, and that's just the way it was. You got used to it. Who and else? Then, and then you go for a beer after, and everything's good. Of course. Uh, who else might have you had? Uh, might you have had run-ins? In practice, uh, Richie Pilon, Richie, Richie, and I always had a little bit of a love hate. I loved him to death. I have utmost respect for him, and he was somebody who I admired and how hard he worked every day. But I remember we were doing one on ones in practice, and 
I made fun of him because he had a little bit of a lisp. Yeah. And I beat him. I beat him wide one time. And then I chirped him a little bit, and I beat him wide again another time. And then he says to Chinny, he goes, Chinny, if he fucking does that one more time, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and I beat him wide, oh. and he fucking came after me, and we had a we had a pretty good fight. And then we went out, I think we went out to, for dinner that night and had a beer and laughed about it. But I fought him, I fought Chinny. Chinny and I had a fight. I picked him in practice one time. We were doing a drill, and I picked him and laid him flat on his ass. He didn't even have the puck. <laughs> it was like, it was, he hit me, and he was a lefty, which yeah. I knew, and he hit me with a left, and he had one of those noses. I don't know if anybody knew that you could push it right in. He was like Ernie and Bert's nose. Yeah. He could push it right in. He had no cartilage in his nose, and I think... I think it was Louis DeBrus did that to him in Madison Square Gardens one time where he mm. flattened it out for him. But oh Chinny, who I got the most respect for, and was he was a pretty tough kid. Uh, we had a good fight, and they were—you know what—I think we fought each other because it was something we could do at home and have some bragging rights when we were going out because we all hung out together all the time. Yeah. Mark Bergerman, I fought. Berge was a. Another guy, I think I beat him wide in practice one time, and he got mad at me and didn't like it, so he wanted to fight, and uh, it was just something that we did. Mm -hmm. I never fought uh, Kenny Baumgartner. I was always scared of him. I, was I don't say, know why. Smart move. Smart <laughs> move. Bomber, Bomber used to twitch when he was mad, and it would scare the shit out of me, and I didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> I don't think you're alone. I think even guys who fought him were scared of him. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah. Well, especially yeah, during his island. long arms. Yeah, and, and uh, especially during his Islander tenure, he was just a terror. So uh, I'm not exactly. Uh, one guy you did fight, and you mentioned him already, and this is, uh, and I, I told you this is probably when I first introduced myself to you was uh, was after this game, probably the following week at Kaniac Park. Uh, there was a game in Philadelphia, and you had a really good fight with Dale Kushner, and you had mentioned him already uh, that I believe you're in training camp with him. Uh, so do you remember this? I do, and and there was a there's a little bit of a story behind it, and it was one of those things. Um, I was a rookie, and Kush called me a rookie every day, mm -hmm. and it was hey fucking rookie, hey fucking rookie, get me this, get me that, get me Gator, mm -hmm. every single day, ten times a day, and there was one point where I remember we were on the bus going to Philly, um, and I said to Mick, I said Mick. Because Cush had got traded or he signed with them after. I can't remember now. Mm -hmm. I says, Mick, if Cush says one thing to me tonight, I said, I don't care what the score <laughs> is, I'm fighting him. Mm -hmm. And he actually goes after our goalie. It was Jeff Hackett at yep. the time. Yep. And he goes after our goalie. And he, I think Joe Rieke grabbed him. And I grabbed Joe and pulled him away and said, Joe, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I want him. And we ended up having a pretty good fight. Yeah. And, and after that, I hadn't talked to him. I hadn't seen him. And I'm in Calgary in the summertime. I think I went to Stampede. And I'm with Chinny. We're playing pool in a bar. And we're having a beer. And Kush is in there with his wife. And Kush comes up to me and, and he and he's you know he's he's a loud guy he's a yeah. funny guy and I loved him I had a lot of respect for him he was just pissed me off when he called me a rookie every day mm -hmm. all year and he says honey you want to meet the guy that kicked the shit out of me and I'll never forget <laughs> it <laughs> I'll never forget it because that was just his personality and it was pretty funny because I you know I've got a lot of respect for Kush and, and any fighter because it's not an easy job and yeah. you know I fought once in a while but your hands and your face are sore for a long time and I still can't close either one of my hands fully completely and I didn't fight that much and 
you know, I've seen some of those guys' hands that are just absolutely mangled, and um, people don't understand how hard it is to be an enforcer in the NHL, and especially in the old days. Uh, it's just remarkable at uh, you know the abuse that that the, is put on your bodies and your and your mindset going into each game because I actually ended up changing. I'm like, who am I going to fight tonight? Yeah. And I'm like, Kate, hey, don't fight him. He might hurt you. He could end your career. <laughs> oh, Joe Kroos, closer? No, not yeah. going to fight him. I saw what he did to Dally, and everybody saw it. Brad Delgarno. Yeah. So you know what? There is a there is a there's a game within the game, and and as a fighter, there's a different part of the game. As a as a goal scorer and an offensive guy, you got to be thinking of different things. And going into hockey games, and that was my mindset. Only thing I worried about that day was if Kush says something to me, which he didn't have to because he did something stupid, and I just took the initiative. And Mick always laughs at me because he said, if you watch me in the penalty box after. I was so excited. I cleaned up the entire penalty box and made sure everything was straightened out and organized. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably hoping you'd fight more and you come in and clean up everything. Yeah, well, our coaches started calling me Rocky Marciano or Hector Camacho after that. And I'm like, well, finally they're talking to me. <laughs> exactly. Better to be known <laughs> for something. First time in two years. <laughs> and, and that season you had two more fights. Uh, one was at Gary Volk in Vancouver. And then you ended up fighting Mark Hardy at MSG. You had already talked about that rivalry. Uh, anything about either one of those fights stand out for you? You know, Mark Hardy's does. I remember that one really well, and I'll talk about that. The Gary Volk fight, I, I played against Gary growing up in minor hockey and in, in junior, and I think it was just one of those things. He did something or I did something, and we ended up fighting. And, he, you know, he was a big, tough guy, and I respected how he played. And it, there wasn't a real whole lot of story to it. It was just yeah. a typical hockey fight. Yeah. The one with Mark Hardy was interesting because, uh, you know what, I, he was, <laughs> I think he was about 10 or 12 years older than me. I was eight, 19 at the time, and he was almost 30. Yeah. And we had, as everybody knows, those rivalries going into to, to Madison Square Garden were just... I'm, I remember Mick, Richie, and Kenny Baumgartner talking about Who's got Domi first? Who's going to grab who first? And then they had Pete Fiorentino, and then they had Denny Vial, and everybody kind of, it, it was a strategic plan laid out before games. Okay, you fought him first last time, let me fight him. And Mick, I thought Mick did better against Ty Domi than Bomber did. He did. But it was, it was, you know, they just fought different against different guys. If they both fought the same guy, one guy might be able to beat him up and the other guy might get beaten up or do well in a different fight. And that's just the way it was. Yeah. But I remember we had a little bit of a kind of a line brawl. And, 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 and I knew, I knew Mark was an older guy, like a lot of those guys. Um, older guys are deceiving. They, they're not stupid. They know how to fight. They know how to handle themselves. And, and, um, he was a guy that we just kind of ended up squaring off with, and I knew he was strong. He was a tank to play against, and I yeah. knew he was strong. And I hit him with a punch, and I remember I met him a few years ago, and he told me I broke his nose, and oh. I remember hitting him as hard as he could right in the middle square in the nose, and he grabbed onto me, and kind of the fight was over, but it had to do with the fact that I was on the ice during a little bit of a melee when these knuckleheads are so uh -huh. excited to get into it. I'm shitting my pants. I got to grab somebody, and you know what? Uh, Mark and I fought, and he hit me with a few, but I remember hitting him with a pretty good one in the nose, and he said I broke it after, but it was one of those nights where it was just, I was a part of a, I was part of the guys letting loose on each other, and uh, I had to do what I had to do. Nice. So, uh, the next season, and I, I think this, I, 
my my question is this: Next season, you played uh, twelve games with the Islanders, and you played the majority of the season in Capital District, and that was the first year where you didn't play the majority of your games with the Islanders. So, I guess if we start out with the Islanders, um, I guess my my first question is: uh, I'm sure you remember early in the season they made the trades with Buffalo and the trades with Chicago, where Patty went out and Pierre came in and Benoit Hogue and um, Steve Thomas and those guys. Um, did those, either of those trades affect you on the team? Not so much mentally or anything, but like your status on the team. Did any of those, either of those trades, affect your place on the team? It, it did a little bit because Stumpy and Ben Wahold were both wingers that came in. Uh, Pierre was a, obviously Terge was a centerman. Uh, I think what it did was it made our team better, and it, it, it gave it, it it didn't it didn't allow for me to move up in the ladder. It either was a lateral position or I kind of got bumped down a little bit. Mm. And unfortunately I ended up, uh, I didn't play a whole lot in those first 10 games. Didn't get any points. I might've had an assist, a phantom assist here Mm. and they decided to send me down. And it was, it was almost like, okay, we want you to go down and get some ice time. And I'm like, okay, after year three, you guys are deciding now I need ice time. Yeah, yeah. I, I've missed out on, uh, you know, an opportunity to develop at 18, 19. And now, you know, it was almost Christmas time when they sent me down yeah. and I hadn't played any games and they decided that that was going to be the time to send me down, which was just bizarre. When I, at the time, you don't think about it, but now looking back, I'm like, what was the thought process? I just don't get it. Now, you know, I, I've been around hockey a long time now, my entire life. And I just don't understand the thought process. And I don't think any hockey team would ever do that in this day and age with a young kid. Yeah. No, I think nowadays, definitely not. No, especially not a first round pick. No, no chance. You know, and, yeah. and and granted, the the kids are getting a lot more money now, so there's a business side to it where you got to pay a, you got to play a guy. He's got to get ice time if he's making you know a million dollars a year. You can't just let. But it just didn't make sense to me. And 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 I all I wanted to do was play hockey. I didn't care if I went played it in junior. I actually didn't even care if I played it in the minors. No. I just wanted to play hockey. That mm-hmm. was it. When you went to Capital District, you got a lot more ice time. You scored 33 points in 55 games, uh, and you played with some tough guys down there. You had a pretty tough team. Uh, we've already spoken about Dean Chenalf and um, Kevin Sheveldayoff. Uh, you played with guys like Rick Hayward, uh, Wayne Doucette, Dean Trebojevic, and obviously, you know, I have to ask about Dean Ewan. We had a team that we needed to have this team because going into Adirondack, which was Detroit's farm team. This is my next question, by the way, the Adirondack. So Adirondack and Binghamton had the two toughest teams in the league, and we had, thank God, we had Dean Ewan, and he was scary. And he, you know what the best part of Dean was? He's the biggest teddy bear, Mm -hmm. and he has the, I'm trying to use the right word, the moat, the, 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 the goofiest giggle. Giggle is the word everyone he's uses. Got, he's got a giggle that he would, and it's unbelievable how he would giggle and get so excited about little things like he was a little kid. And then he got on the ice and his eyes would go back in his head and he'd go fucking ballistic. And I loved it because they had some tough guys in Adirondack. They had tough guys in Binghamton. And... And it's funny, I, t- I talk about, so I played with uh, Sean Byer, and Bizey played there too. Yeah. And Bizey, who I coached his kid this year in uh, in Vancouver with the Giants, 
and it's Bowen, who's a wonderful kid, and he loves hearing stories about his dad. And Bizey used to have the game sheet before the games all the time. And I remember we'd go into either Adirondack or Binghamton, and he'd go through all the tough guys, and he'd be like, um, who would he go after? He went through, uh, let's call it, so for Binghamton, he'd be like, Denny Vial's playing tonight? Oh my God, he's a fucking killer. And we had young guys like Travis Green's in the dressing room. Greeny wasn't a fighter at all. He was an offensive guy. Mm-hmm. We had young Ian Fraser would be in the dressing room. These guys, everybody would be shitting their pants because he'd be going through, you know, uh, Pete Fiorentino, Denny Vial, Rudy Postcheck would get sent down. Ty Domi was down. And and Bizey would go through the list all the time. And we did. he'd do the same thing in Adirondack. And the best part was is we had Dean Ewan. We had Dean Chanel. We had, um, we had Dean Trebojevic. We had some tough guys. I remember Butchie, Butch Coring brought in a guy named Fra- Frankie the Animal. What was his name? Bialois. Fra- yep. Frankie Bialois. Mm-hmm. And the best part was he came in the dressing room in CDI, and he had a gun in his pocket, <laughs> and he had a broken hand and a cast on his wrist, and he still played that night. We played in... Uh, Adirondack, I believe, against they had a guy named Tomlinson. What was his Kirk name? Tomlinson. Kirk Tomlinson. Gunner. Really gunner. He was a tough, tough kid. Mm-hmm. He could fight. And they had a bunch of guys. Jimmy Cummins was there. And they just had a bunch of guys that could fight. And it was so scary going into Adirondack and Bingo that it thank God we had these guys. Yeah. Because I couldn't imagine how our games would be if we didn't have them. And Dino was that guy that he loved these games. He he would. I watched him, and his hands. You talk about hands. Yeah. I'd love to see a picture of his hands. That you know what? It, people would be absolutely shocked, because these guys' hands are absolutely a mess. And Dino, who's the goofiest, giddiest guy off the ice, was a psycho killer on the ice, and I loved it. I loved yeah. being on his team, and I loved those guys. And he was a great team guy, as you know him, yeah. as well as anybody. And and. He's just a remarkable, remarkable man, and um, so sad about his brother. Yeah. Uh, you know what? That's just the way life is. But he, uh, he's a, he's an outstanding kid. I loved him. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, actually, like I said, my next question was about Adirondack because I think I think it's natural for people who don't follow the American League to just assume that the Binghamton rivalry was the rivalry with Capital District. Oh. But as tough as those games were, I think. The, the Adirondack games got nasty. They got really nasty. They got personal. Uh, and I'd argue that Adirondack, for at least that one season or two seasons, was a nastier rivalry than Binghamton. 100% it was. Yeah. It was. We were 40 minutes down the road. Yeah. We had a, we had, it, they called it the Subway Series, too. We had a little bit of a, an ongoing kind of competition. And at the end of the year, one of the teams would win the Subway Series award, yeah. but it could have been the ugliest kind of wanted to turn it into a fun rivalry competition. It could have been one of the ugliest rivalries in hockey to the point where we, I think we ended up getting into fights with them off the ice, yeah. in the, like underneath the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember, um, I just remember like, fans throwing stuff at us. Adirondack was a tough place to play. Yeah. They had a tough team, and it was always, always a battle. And, and you go back to Rick Hayward. Hay- Hazy was probably one of the toughest guys I played with, um, and he was phenomenal to have on our team because he was he was just kind of a slight guy. He wasn't very big, but he could fight. He had long arms. He knew how to fight, and he loved fighting, too. And He, he was another guy like Dino where 
he he kind of didn't look as intimidating because he had that smile on his face, a little bit like Ty Domi, the way he would fight. Yeah. And you know what? You hate guys who got a smile on their fight face <laughs> when they're fighting. So yeah. you know, we had Graham Townsend yeah. too. Old Boomba there was awesome. He was a good teammate. He was uh, he was a big tough guy too. So we had a big heavy team and we needed it because. Uh, it, those were just they were wars every game every game we played at no matter what standings did not matter at all back then yeah. it mattered who was going to be uh who was going to be getting stitched up after and who wasn't <laughs> and for you personally that year um you were able to go down the capital district you played with butch goring who is, just has a reputation for really uh for the most part being a, a player's coach uh, and he obviously gave you the ice time because you put some points up. You had some penalty minutes. Um, and obviously the, the goal is to be in the NHL. But based on what had happened the last few years, was it almost a bit of a relief to, to be down there and, and play down there? Because I'm sure you got first-line minutes or second-line minutes. Uh, was it almost a sense of relief? 100%, Joe. Yeah. Again, I go back to it's ice time. And, and, you know, we used to have a saying, when you win a championship, it doesn't matter if you win the Stanley Cup, the Calder Cup, the Turner Cup. Uh, I'm not sure what the Coast Cup is, but <laughs> no matter what league you're playing in, winning a championship is special. And you have a bond with those guys forever. It's no different than no matter what league you're playing in, playing, getting ice time and playing the game you love and grew up playing for free is still exciting and and yeah you're not in the nhl you're not making nhl money but you know what it's something that you still love and play just as hard you play just as hard and you have just as much fun and it's just as exciting going into adirondack and binghamton and providence and at the time you know in the eye they had you know orlando and la like it's just you're still playing a game that you love yeah. And it doesn't matter. It's no different. I'm a, I'm a huge, I love cooking. I'm not great, but I love cooking. And I have a lot of passion for cooking. I don't care if I'm cooking for 25 people or for myself. Yeah. I cook the same way and I put the same amount of effort in as I do for both. And, and at the end of the day, it's something that I really believe that, you know what, when kids are, are doing something they love, it doesn't matter what level they're doing it at. They love it just as much. Yeah, would they love to do it at a different level? Absolutely. You know, I I love coaching minor hockey. I lo- I coached a, a girls team as well this year down in Vancouver. Yeah. I loved it. It was coaching and teaching, and it's something that you absolutely when you have a passion for something, it's it's uh, it's a good feeling helping other people and and teaching them things that that you uh, that you've already been through. And that's the one thing I like to think is the amount of experience I've gone through and had in my life in hockey and what kids are going through. It's no different, and they just you know what the sky isn't falling you're gonna be just fine so you're in a five-game goal scoring streak let's just work on how you're gonna get out of it and that's that's the part of coaching that I really enjoyed and but you can't get that without having experience and that and that's one of the things that uh, that I really admire about you so much because um, you've been through a lot you went through a lot as a player Um, you know turmoil is probably an understatement but and you could have gone one of two ways. I mean, you could have recoiled, you could have sulked, you could have, you know, just seethed a lot and everything. But, it, it, you know, as I, as I looked, your post-playing career, you know, you're out there, you're coaching, you're, you're working with Kamloops and in, in in different thing, marketing or whatever it is, and you're putting yourself out there. And what you're doing is, is sending the message to a lot of young people saying, 
like you just said, the sky isn't falling and everything, and look at what I've been through, and look where I am now, and you really could have gone down a few different paths, and you really, the path that you've, you've chosen to go down, really, I mean, you're helping countless number of people uh, along the way, and, and you know, I, I mean, not that me saying I'm proud of you is, is something, but I mean, it really is a credit to you. You know, it's funny you say that, Joel, because when I first retired in whatever it was, 05, 06, I went over to Europe and played for a, a bit, and uh, I really enjoyed it there as well. But one of the things was when I retired and I came back and worked for the Camelot's Blazers, um, who were owned by good friends of mine, Daryl Sador, Mark Recchi, Jerome McGinla, and Shane Doan, uh, and then Tom Gillardi, who, who I ended up becoming good friends with, um, I never told anybody I played hockey. I never told, and I was part of the uh, the business side where I was in charge of all the corporate advertising and whatnot. And I never told a soul that I played hockey. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to talk about it. And Tom used to always kind of, you know, in his joking way, um, you know, and it didn't it didn't bother me. But Tom used to always go, "Do you know? Do you know this guy? You know where he got drafted? Do you know where he got drafted?" And I'm uh-huh. like, you know what? I don't I don't tell anybody that. I don't yeah. want to talk about it. I wouldn't talk about it, mm-hmm. and I actually hated it, and I didn't want it. I and and I I loved not being somebody that everybody knew and you know my my, my middle brother who I loved dearly and he still he still gives me shit he was biggest bust in the history of the NHL <laughs> and he always says he always goes Matt Sundin Matt Sundin has an island what do you have and I'm like you know what I got a pool and a hot tub that's all I need <laughs> I mean you- so I kind of. I made fun of myself in a way, but I never, ever wanted to talk about hockey. I never admitted that I played. Mm -hmm. I never told anybody I played. I'm like, I just wanted to go away. And that was it. And just probably recently in the last five, six years, I've started to talk about it Mm -hmm. and the good things about it. And you know what? Some of the shitty part, it happens, but you always remember the good times and the shitty parts are just the shitty parts. You get through it. No matter how good of or bad of a year you have, you always remember the good times in that year. It's just something that I always was like with playing hockey. Like I said, just hearing you talk, man, it's really impressive and you're really doing good things uh, with the young people now. So you should be proud of yourself. Yeah, you know what? It's it's kids don't know yeah. when you don't when there's an unknown, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. And you know what? I, and that's where I enjoy working with players. I I I, ha- I really enjoyed my time with the Vancouver Giants this year because I went through every single thing every one of those guys went through. Like with Bo and Byram, mm-hmm. Bizey is a high draft pick. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. yeah, it's different with social media, and he's a phenomenal player. There's limelight on him all the time. I'm like, you know what? And and I had him over for dinner a few times, and I'm like, this is you just got to not worry about all that shit. Just play and have fun. And when you have a bad game, learn from it. When you have a good game, don't get too high, and just continue to build and and work on the things that that come naturally to you. And don't you can't care what other people say. And that was probably one thing that I I was so concerned and worried about what everybody else thought. And you know, was you know one of the biggest challenges i had was i remember an article in the in the new york uh what was it newsday one time was how they compared me to mike bossy and i'm like oh. come on are you kidding me <laughs> really like that oh. you don't why yeah. yeah i shot the puck well that was it this yeah. guy was a, a a specimen in in how to score goals and and you just it's it's hard you know yeah. 
it's I you know you can't I don't want to be anybody else I had idols but I don't want to be like them I want to be the best version of myself and that was one thing that I've learned how to do now more than than I did probably when I played but you don't know those things when you play yeah and that's why I think it's really neat to have somebody that's gone through it be able to walk you through what's going to happen and then they go like I have kids that I coached in Bantam that are you know 10 years ago that come to me they've played a little bit of pro and they're like I remember when you said this you were right yeah. like, I know I was right mm-hmm. I've been through it yeah. you know but at the end of the day um, honestly it, it hockey needs to be fun and there's got to be some passion involved and if you don't have that I don't care what league you're playing in it's just not you know when it when it turns into a job or a business it's not the same you don't play it the same you don't approach it the same and I've approached you know even working uh working for tom with the blazers for 16 years i always approached it that you know what i i i worked for him in the regards where i felt i was part of the ownership group and i had had a piece of ownership in this team because i was an alumni and that's how he treated my job every day and i loved coming to work every day and you know what it was it was great but i wanted to get into coaching and that's why i took a little bit of a break and and i've enjoyed coaching again so we'll see where that goes you never know yeah that's great that's great um so one transition that was made for you eventually uh with the island organization they transitioned from having the american league team in capital district to uh having their affiliate in the ihl in salt lake and the year you had in salt lake another good year 66 games 40 points 150 pins uh you played with a couple of characters down there uh, one was the chief, Jason Simon, and uh, yeah. Mark LaForge. <laughs> you talk about those were, I, you know what, the chief was awesome. And I don't know if a lot of people know this, so my draft year in Minnesota, he got drafted. He was the last pick. He was the very last pick in the draft. Yeah. And he went to the draft by himself, and he got picked in the 12th or 14th round. I can't remember. Yeah. And he ran down <laughs> to get a jersey on stage. And it was the funniest thing, and nobody remembered. Nobody remembered, and he was explaining this to us. And he was such a nice guy. Yeah. But we played an April Fool's joke on him that backfired like no other. Okay. And I'll never forget this in Salt Lake City. It was April Fool's. And when you come to the rink in the morning and your bag's packed up and you're supposed to go see the coach, it means one thing, especially if you're playing well and you're ready to make that next jump, you're getting called up to the NHL team. And we played a joke on him and packed his bags and told him to go see Farley, oh. who, uh, 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 what was his name? Farish. Uh, Dave Farish was our coach. Yeah. And he went in there and he goes, I think the guys are, I think the guys are fucking around with you, Chief. Mm-hmm. Well, we started practice that day where I think we had a couple tennis balls on the ice because Farley loved playing a little warm-up drill with tennis balls and everybody against everybody. Chief fought, I think, seven guys. <laughs> he, anybody that came in his way, he dropped his gloves and you wanted to fight him. He was so mad. <laughs> he was so mad, Joe. It was like, Finally, I th- I don't think I fought him, but I think I went and grabbed him. I go, Chief, I'm sorry. We thought it'd be funny, <laughs> and he was good. He calmed down. But it was, it's, you think about it, you were so excited to get called up to your first NHL game, yeah. and it was an April Fool's joke, oh. and I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Oh well, some guys paid for it, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. He did end up playing and getting to some games after, and I think yep. he had a few fights and. Yep. Uh, yeah, he was a guy that turned uh, not a lot of stuff into something and, and, and had a little bit of a career, which was great for him. 
not easy, not easy, not an easy job. No. And then at some point that year, you ended up getting called up. Was that the end of the season? You got called it back was, up. It was. It was. So what happened was was uh, I played with two pretty good players that year who were kids, Zygmunt Palfi and and Derek Armstrong, and I loved these two. They were like my little brothers. And Ziggy could score goals, and Army could dish the puck like no other, and and we just worked together really well as a line. And I had some success and scored some goals, and then they called us up. I think I ended up signing an extension at the end of that year because mm-hmm. that would have been the year before the lockout, I yeah. think, yes. if I remember. Correct. And then I signed it a two or three year extension, and then uh, got called up for the playoffs. Was that the year we played Pittsburgh and Dale Hunter? I think hit. Uh, hit Patty uh, and separated his shoulder? No, it was he hit Pierre. Pierre, I mean, yeah. sorry, that's right. Yeah. I think that might have been the year. No, because it was the year after because I didn't get called up for that. I think I was still in. They only had a few guys to hang around. Yeah. I can't remember, but yeah. So that was the year I signed an extension, and that was the year before the lockout, which mm-hmm. I ended up, I'm not playing anymore. Yeah. I don't, yeah. So it was, uh, I finished, I had a good year, and I signed an extension. Donnie Maloney was our GM, Yeah, and I was pretty excited. And, uh, yeah, it all, well, it all went downhill after that, I think. <laughs> well, I was going to say, so you signed this extension, you're all excited, and then next season there's the lockout. Yeah. So, um, and the funny part was, is so everybody's taken off. I'm like, I want to go play. So my brother at the time is playing, or he's coaching in Europe. He's like, come over. You can come over and make some money and play and get some ice time. So... I make the decision to go over and play in Germany for a few games, and then Malaco comes back, and I don't. Pl- I don't think I played any games after I came back. The, the team was mad that I went over there, and I'm like, I need to play some games. Yeah, I can't sit as a as a 21 year old and not play any hockey games. And the funny part was, they sent a bunch of guys down to the minors again, yeah. and not me. I was going to ask and, you about that because I saw and, you, and I, and I yeah. don't, and I don't know why. Still yeah. to this day, why would you send down? We had one of the, and I'm trying to think who the, the there was a Russian player in our team that got sent down, and a few other guys, and I wasn't one of them. Yeah, and I'm know. like, you got a young kid who it's. I'm only three years into the organization. I got another year left on my contract, or I signed. No, part of me, I signed an extension. Why not send me down to the minors and play and get ice time? Yeah, and continue my development, but. I, it, it's just it's mind blowing, Joe, and yeah. I don't get it. Well, I don't know. We're going to move on to some greener <laughs> pastures eventually. But that year, you had your last fight with the Islanders. Uh, I believe it was in Florida against Joe Sorella. Joe Sorella, yeah, strong guy. You did very well in that. Do you remember that? I do remember him. He was a big man. He was a big man. Yeah. And uh, I do remember the fight. He hit me pretty hard a few times and. Again, it was just something that I was always told, do not stop throwing punches, don't grab on, you just throw like your life is depending on it, and that's all I did, and I think mm-hmm. we, we had a good fight, but it was just another one of those things, and I can't remember why we fought on that one, but yeah. I, I always like to think there was reasons behind fights, and that was one that was probably just a typical battle in the corner, or being in front of the net, and he cross-checked me, and I cross-checked him back, and that was one thing I, I, I guess I didn't... I didn't care if I ever got beaten up, so I wasn't intimidated, you know, out loud by guys. But yeah. deep down inside, you know, there were some guys that I really tried to stay away from. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Tony Twists of the world, or 
are uh, they're dangerous people they can hurt you and Twister's a good buddy of mine and he, he always told me he says you should have fought me it would have helped you and I'm like you would have killed me <laughs> yeah, well, that would have been nice to you him and I used to go on long motorbike rides together so yeah. he always, I remember we, I was in Chicago and I had a chance to fight him and I'm kicking myself I said I should have fought you it might have helped my opportunity there well, I was going to say he said he would have been nice to you what did he mean after you got out of the hospital exactly <laughs> he, you know what he would have done I would have gotten cocky and hit him with a few and he would have said okay enough is enough yeah and i would have pissed him off enough they would have said okay <laughs> sorry kid yeah but now, i had to teach you a little lesson here <laughs> so that season you actually did end up in the minors but it wasn't with the grizzlies you ended up in kalamazoo um does that have to do with ken hitchcock being there it did i actually asked if i was starting to talk to hitch which yeah. i kept in contact with him all the time I'm like, I'm not playing here. Can can I at least just get loaned there? I'm not mm -hmm. getting any ice time. Yeah. And the Islanders were gracious enough to loan me to Kalamazoo. And again, I went there and, and, and played well. I remember we had a, a really good team. Mm -hmm. I played with another young kid. They always put me with the young guys, a young guy named Jamie Langenbrunner, who I ended up yeah. living with. Mm -hmm. And you know what? We had a really good team. We had a really solid team that went on a long run that should have won the Turner Cup that year but we kind of we kind of floundered at the end it wasn't uh, it wasn't the ending we wanted but it was a it was an unbelievable team and uh, I remember Neil Brady and I think Cush might have been there too with us I know he and, was there for a bit I know you yeah. played uh, Grant Marshall was there and yeah Marshy was yeah. there we had a lot of guys Jason Herter was there Herb Raglan was mm -hmm. there uh, it, we Kevin got Brad Berry or Kevin Guy I can't remember uh, we had um, Torch was our goalie, the big yeah. goalie. Mm -hmm. We just had uh, Manny Fernandez was another goalie. Yeah. We, had, we had a phenomenal team, and I think we lost in the finals to Kansas City to go to the Turner Cup. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was fun, and I, and I did have some success, success there. And um, it was a it was a, a great an opportunity to get ice time and play hockey again and have fun doing it. So that season you went to Kalamazoo, you played 16 games in the playoffs, you had 14 points, you had 9 goals. Brings me to my next point. The next season you're in Adirondack. Now, if you had signed an extension with the Islanders, was it, was it a trade to Detroit? Did you sign with Detroit? How did that come about? Uh, so I signed an extension yeah. for the one year. Okay. And then, and then Mike Milbury came in mm -hmm. and I got bought out. He did you a favor. He did me a favor. Yeah. Here's, the, here's the best part. I get bought out in the spring of my other two years because I think it was a three year deal if I remember correctly I get bought out in the spring I sign with Detroit uh, in probably July or August the beginning of September I get a package and an envelope in the mail it's an invite to the Islanders camp with a new jersey with the with the new logo the, the uh, Long Island lo the, the fisherman what was the fisherman logo yeah. a whole bunch of t-shirts a track suit um, an invite, hey Dave, we're real excited about the upcoming season, this is your invite to camp, I had to call him and say, hey, I'm not there anymore, you bought me out <laughs> I'm not surprised I said, you want me to send this back? Yeah. He says, no, keep it Oh, God. Well, listen, based on what uh, I'm not going to get in a whole military thing I, I just thought it was yeah. like that's kind of funny. I'm glad they bought you out because based on, you know, the years you had there, I just, I can't imagine things would have gotten any better. So uh, I'm glad they bought you out. Um, yeah, no, and it was, you know what, it was an opportunity at a, at a new, 
it was a new opportunity to try again and I was still young I think I was only yeah. 23 or 24 I, I mean I felt old already yeah. I'd been in the league for three or four years but it was an opportunity to go play again and I was I was really fortunate to play for uh, who I have the utmost respect for in Newell Brown who yeah. uh, who's an assistant with Ed, uh, with Vancouver now mm-hmm. and he was our head coach uh, it was a great again we had a phenomenal team but I also understood the the history of Detroit and Rondack and the uh, intimidation factor of that building, which I love playing in, and uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, then I got to play with all the knuckleheads that were in Adirondack, like Kerry Toporowski and Mark Major, and we had some pretty tough guys, and we had a great team there. And uh, again, we went far, had a good year, had a great year there, and uh, and then I didn't, I didn't get called up to. Uh, to further my my NHL opportunity, but that's how it goes. But I, I do want to make a point, and where I was going with the Kalamazoo thing, and, and leading into this, I I think you are the perfect example of a guy where you can see maybe where you got the support you needed and where you didn't, because you look at where you put points up. Your numbers in Adirondack were were pretty amazing. You played 80 games, 44 goals, 83 points, 160 penalty minutes. You led the team in scoring. By almost 30 points, okay? So it's obvious, and like I said, when you mentioned Newell Brown, it's obvious if you look at your numbers, and, and I, I'm always one of these guys, I'm not an analytics guy, and I think there, there's always more to the story than numbers. But for you, you can always pick the teams where you probably got a lot of support, you probably got good coaching, and maybe just something emotional, psychological, where you're putting up insane numbers, like in Adirondack, 83 points in 80 games, you're still dropping the gloves every now and then, obviously, with some of the guys you mentioned you didn't have to. But, I mean, a lot of guys would have been shell-shocked, and you absolutely were not. You know, I, I have to admit that as once I left New York, it was almost like I was this battered child that everybody felt bad for. I remember my first conversations with each coach. Every time I changed teams after that, they're like, what happened to you and why could you not score in new york because here's what we see and i'd always start well i've got obviously i got put in offensive roles and and i never i never i don't want to say i didn't have fine failures but i always had success in in those years when i played with offensive guys and i got put in certain situations and i was used to playing under pressure i was used to being you know playing on the power play i was used to it was something that was normal for me and i didn't worry about fighting anymore i worried about not worried about i enjoyed playing again and yeah the fights happened because I still love fighting. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. something about it. There's mm-hmm. there's a euphoria that comes with fighting, and and there's such a, a high that's involved. It's like scoring a goal. Yeah. And and honestly, whether you win or lose, it doesn't matter. But I didn't. I wasn't looking at. I wasn't looking at who am I going to fight that game. I'm looking at who's their top guys and who am I going to try and outplay. Yeah. And how am I going to how am I going to find the best version of Dave Chizowski tonight? And that's what I enjoyed doing it as a junior, and that's what I, I took pride in in, in the minors because I guess, you know, ultimately you're always trying to get back to the NHL, mm-hmm. and it was something that I couldn't do at, that, at the National Hockey League level, but I could, and I don't want to say easily, but I did it in the minors, 
and I always found it was tougher to play in the minors because, you know, you're not playing with the same type of players. Like in the NHL, there's, you know, there's guys that make the perfect pass and the right play every time. And it doesn't necessarily happen like that in the minors. But I found some success and, and you know, I, I had a good minor league career. I just didn't, I didn't figure out what I needed to do to play in the NHL. You signed a one-year deal with Detroit, correct? Because then the, uh, next year you signed with Chicago. Yes, okay. that's correct. So for a guy, I'm laughing because you said you know that you didn't, you know, the fights came here and there. But in Indianapolis that year, you had 261 <laughs> penalty minutes, and it's not like you were by yourself. You played with a, a, probably one of the toughest guys ever to play in the minors, and you got a, a game with St. Louis, Stone Cold Steve McLaren. Uh, yeah, he was right. He sat right beside me. Yeah. So you played with McLaren. <laughs> you played with Al Nazruddin, uh, yeah. and the Royer brothers were there. So, uh, so the fights oh, just happened. Remy, yeah. Yeah. yeah too, uh, but before we get to that, I got to ask. So in Chicago, uh, that preseason, you ended up fighting Denny Lambert. Do you remember that one? I remember it really well. It was an exhibition game, and he went after somebody, and we ha- I had a great fight with him. Yeah. And I wanted to do, I remember, uh, I remember our coaches bringing me into the room and again, they said, we don't care what's happened to you in the past. You have an opportunity. We like what you do. You have an opportunity to make this hockey club. I, it was Craig Hartsburg. Yeah. And it was, it was ironic because he talked to me more in, in Chicago that year whenever I got called up then then anybody talked to me in New York in all my years and, and I always be like okay this is weird these guys are talking to me mm-hmm. every day this is what they wanted me to work on mm-hmm. I ended up getting sent down after training camp but I got I was one of the first call-ups that year yeah and I spent probably six or eight weeks there at Christmas time I only played a handful of games but I was I was I was working out I was pl- I, when the games I played I played I had a ton of ice time yeah and I'm like, okay, this is crazy. I'm having fun again. This is absolutely my time to, to, to get back to playing the way that I'm capable of playing. And I had a good year in the minors. I got called up a few times. I got called up a few times at the end of the year. And then I decided the next year that I was going to go play in the minors for good because I could make way more money playing in the eye on a independent contract rather than an NHL contract. When... You were called up, like you said, you called up for Christmas. I, like you said, I think I had it. You looked like you were up there for uh, seven, eight weeks. Yeah. Uh, did you? Did you? Th- and I, obviously, I guess the conversation you had with them in, in camp must have rejuvenated you a little bit. But um, did you? Did you think the dream was over that you were never going to get a chance again? And when you got called up, how did that make you feel? It, it was unbelievable. And I, I, I had this goofy saying all the time, as long as you're playing, the dream's never over. No matter what yeah. league, as long as you're playing, the dream never is over. And there's guys in the coast that still dream every day and play like they're going to get a chance to play in the NHL. And you know what? I admire that in players. And at the end of the day, it was almost to the point where I felt more comfortable and more ready and more prepared to play in Chicago than I ever did when I was in New York with the Islanders because I didn't, I still, I was young and I didn't, I didn't have that inner confidence, and and I didn't think I, I I was good enough to be there yet. When I got called up to Chicago, I thought, you know what, I think I belong here. 
Yeah. And and that was just the different mindset. I don't know if it's because I became more mature, which nobody's ever said I am. But at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah. I, I I honestly believe that I was just I had a little bit more experience and and I had a better mindset. I was in a better place, I think, a better mindset than I was when I when I came right out of junior. And it kind of it was all it was all new. And when you're with Chicago, you're walking into the locker room. And uh, I'm going to ask you about two guys, Jim Cummins and, of course, the legend Bob Prober. I sat beside Proby, which was interesting. And I, and I, I, you know what? For the first time ever, I watched his show the other day, which is so sad. It's yeah. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I remember him I remember him talking. The first time he said something to me, we were playing. I sat there, I don't know how many games, and he didn't say anything to me, and I wouldn't say anything to him. Yeah. And I remember we were playing St. Louis, and he knew that Twister and I were buddies. And he said to me, I'll never forget, he goes, your buddy. And I was like, uh, who? And he goes, Twister. I go, yeah, I kind of know him. I didn't want him to think we were friends. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes, he scares me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. That kind of, and I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. Because here I'm sitting beside who I consider one of the all-time heavyweights in the NHL is... And I, you know, I looked at Twister. I bug him every once in a while. We, you know, we, I know a different side of Twister. So I thought it was kind of funny that that here's this guy that scared him a little bit. uh, And he admitted it to me. And I'm like, oh, boy, I hope something doesn't happen tonight. (laughs) But you know what? He he was a, uh, you know, such a sad, sad story. And I, I wish that he could have found help because he was a remarkable person a family guy and and you know what he he was a guy that i mean he played in that all-star game he, yeah. he reminded me a little bit of dave Semenko. you know the guy could fight he was gretzky's bodyguard but he also scored goals too and uh he, he was a kind of there those are the type of players you just don't they don't exist anymore and right. um jimmy cummings was a different story because i battled against him in, in the minors all these years mm-hmm. and i got to know him a little bit in chicago and it was fun to play with him and you know, to see how hard he worked off the ice, which I thought was great. They, we had a beautiful gym in the dressing room, and I remember being in the gym all the time with him, and he just loved being in the gym, and I thought it was pretty cool, and I admired that about him because, you know, he was the type of guy that had to work really hard, and probably by the time I got that, to that year of pro hockey, I, I had more and more respect for guys that, you know, battled and made their way up and, and found ways to stay there. So it was, it was neat to watch him and, and uh, learn from him and see how hard he, he worked on and off the ice. And uh, I agree 100%. I love both those guys. Um, so a few of the guys you fought with Indianapolis, sort of the bigger names maybe on your card there. Uh, you fought Sean Penn when he was with Chicago, uh, Darcy Simon, Grand Rapids, uh, Kerry Clark, who I love with Orlando, and then another Orlando Orlando guy, easy for me to say, that you became a teammate of the following year, Barry Dreger. Uh, so, any of those fights stand out for you? All of them. Mm-hmm. They were all scared. They all scared me. Um, <laughs> Sharky, I kind of knew a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, obviously, uh, they're they're from a, a small town in Saskatchewan, and my mom went to school with their mom, oh, which was cool. kind of neat up yeah. in Porcupine Plain, and. Um, Sharky was a tough guy in Orlando that just played hard and they were you know what all those fights didn't have any underlying meeting other than I I loved playing against guys that 
that challenged me in a, in a way that, you know, if I was being an offensive guy and they were going to try and take me off my game, I wasn't going to let that. I tried not to let that bother me. So if I had to fight him, I fought him. And, and it, it, I always found it gave me more room. It, it, it was almost like you get the fight over with, then they leave you alone and you can play your game. And uh, Barry Drager was a pretty tough guy. Uh, he, I had a good fight with him. Uh, Darcy Simon was tough. I battled with him in the in the in junior yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Can't remember. If, I think I fought him once in junior when he was in Seattle. But he was another, you know, big tough guy. Um, you know, I just for whatever reason, if I wasn't scoring goals in a game, I had to make sure I was doing something. And and it was um, it was something that I, for whatever reason I felt like I. I accomplished something or I contributed I should say if I didn't score or if um, give away the puck in my own end and they scored a goal and it cost us the game I always felt like I needed to do something because it it wasn't necessarily for that game it helped either myself or the team when we played them again next time and that was the biggest thing for me you said that uh, you made a decision a conscious decision to go play in the IHL you made more money down there and that was one of the beautiful things about the IHL at the time. When you were making that decision, did you decide to play for three teams in your first season? No. That's <laughs> funny because I did I never got traded once. I you know, I I, I got through my contract, I got bought out. Mm. I hadn't been traded, I think this was about nine years into my, my career, ten years in, I'd never been traded and I get traded twice in the same year. And it was unbelievable because I decided to sign in in Orlando because I really liked uh, I liked their management. I wanted to go play for uh, for Kurt Fraser. Yeah. They had a good hockey club. I knew Hubie McDonough was down there, who uh, who I played with in New York mm-hmm. that Islander fans are aware of. Yeah. Um, and there's some guys down there that I, I really, really, really wanted to be a part of as far as a, a, an offensive group. And we had a remarkable team. And I remember Kurt Fraser was a, a, a coach that he threw skates and he threw stuff in the dressing room in between periods. And, and I wasn't playing, I wasn't playing great. And he says, and he, and he didn't even call me by my name. He, he called me a different name. I can't remember what it was. He didn't know, he didn't know my name. And he, and he was throwing stuff in the dressing room and he yelled at me and asked me, he says, don't worry, you're not going to get traded but I just need you to play better. And the next morning I got called in and I got traded. <laughs> and, were, and were you leading the team in goals at the time, I think? I, I was, and I got traded for three guys from San Antonio, uh, and I can't remember their names. Uh, and it was one of those things where I was so down because I spent the entire summer trying to sign with Orlando, and I didn't even dawn on me to try and get a no trade clause because yeah. I'm like I, I wasn't used to it I didn't get I didn't get traded it wasn't something and I still thought you know I was an elite player in the minors or a, a good player in the minors I thought there was no way I was going to get traded and I got traded for uh, for three guys and they end up winning the Turner Cup that year mm. and I went to San Antonio in my very first game I got I got I blew my knee out playing yeah. against Cleveland and I'm like oh god what's the start of this so I was out for like two months and then I got traded from San Antonio again uh, to Kansas City that year, and that was the rejuvenation of a of a of a, a better 
a better year because I, I loved playing in Kansas City. Uh, I loved our coach, Paul McLean there, who I, I think is probably one of my favorite all-time coaches. And uh, we had a good team. We had a great team. Um, it was a lot of fun. I got to I got to play with Ian Fraser again in Kansas City, and uh, it was it was a we just had Michael Pavanco was my center, and we uh, we had some fun there. We had a it was just fun to come to the rink every day. Mac was really hard on us, but he uh, he was good. Dodie Wood was my roommate, and Do- Dodie uh, is a is a what became a good buddy of mine. And I haven't talked to him for a while, but we had some pretty pretty fun times together and uh it was a special special three years that i spent there and um i really i really enjoyed kansas city beautiful uh beautiful city and a and a wonderful uh group of 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 teammates that we had and uh it was a lot of fun there well that the first season when you got traded to kansas city um there was an incident in quebec um Dale DeGray actually jumped into the <laughs> Kansas City. Bench. It was funny when I, I, I was I remembered it, and one time I was speaking to Dean, and I go, "Do you remember when Dale DeGray jumped into the bench in Quebec? Well, who was he trying to get at?" He goes, "Oh, Chizer. He's going after Chizer." So, <laughs> what what made Dale DeGray jump into the bench to get at you? So, and it's funny because I hadn't seen it. Somebody sent it to me. It's on YouTube. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I think it's funny, and I don't remember it like that, but. So he was a right-hand defenseman. I was a left winger. He was always my guy. I used to have to try and make sure I covered. Mm-hmm. And he, like Paul Coffey, uh, I'm sure Digger would be happy I compared him to him, but <laughs> I could not, for the life of me, catch him if he tried to jump into the play and, and become part of a, you know offensive attack or what, uh, attack, whatever you will, in, in, our, in the offensive zone, in my defensive zone. So I used to go and stand beside him and tell him if he moved anywhere, I'd slash him. So he would skate, and I would two-hand him across the hands. And he'd, and I'd two-hand him in the back of the legs, and then I'd two-hand him in the ribs, and I'd cross-check him and tell him not to go anywhere because I didn't want to get scored on. Yeah. So out of the blue, and this happened, like, constantly. Out of the blue, I'm going back to the bench, and I see him coming. He literally does a Superman into the bench and two hands me over the top of the head, Freddie Flintstone style, and there is a melee in the bench like no other. Now, I've watched it a few times. He's at a disadvantage because I'm leaning back and I'm grabbing him and just trying to give him uppercuts or fight him or whatever. And it's funny because he was at a hockey game about four or five years ago, and, and one of my buddies said, I think he works for Hockey Canada now, and he says, Oh, I'm sitting with a guy named Dale DeGray. I said, tell him I said I. That's the last <laughs> That was the first time I ever talked to him or I talked to somebody that was with him since that incident. I said, ask him about what happened. I said, you can YouTube it. And then he texted me back. He's like, okay, that is unbelievable. Well, it was, it was as old school Joe as you've ever seen. He's also at a disadvantage because he's jumping you on your bench. Which also, which also had guys like Sean Hines, Steve Jakes, yep. and Dean Ewan on the bench. So, yeah, I'd say he was Absolutely. at a bit of a disadvantage. So, yeah. But good for him to do that. Yeah. No, definitely. He and did the Superman and flew right at <laughs> me and hit me as hard as he could with a two-hand. It might be like a 30-game suspension nowadays. Oh, he'd probably be in prison in some states, I'm sure. <laughs> he so. could be, exactly. And then you also fought uh, Jeremy Millimock with Quebec. I don't know if that was a residual residual fight. Again, easy for me to say from that incident. And you ended up fighting Mark Potvin twice that year. 
Mark Potvin, so Jeremy's fight was a, an interesting one in Quebec. We always had battles up there, and I hated, I hated thinking against them. That was the, the what were they called? The the Citadels? The Rafales. The Rafales, pardon yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't know he, again, mm-hmm. you got to know which way these guys throw punches. He was a lefty, and he shut my eye. Yeah. So swollen shut, Joe, I couldn't see for a week of it. Yeah. And, and it was a it was a great fight if you were on his side of it. But uh, again, and I've talked to him about it since. He's a good, he's a good man. But he was a tough kid, and he hit me as hard as I've ever been hit with a left, and uh, he completely closed my eye for a long time. The Mark Potvin fights were a a very typical Capital District Islander Adirondack Red Wing hockey game, and that that we just we battled there all the time. If it wasn't him, I'd have to fight uh, Kirk Tomlinson, and it, it was something that. Old Tommy Gun there, he was a boxer off the ice, I think, and I was a little bit worried that he might catch me. And, and Potsy was a, he was a big, strong, he was more like me. He was just a big, strong guy that could fight. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of preferred fighting him than, than anybody. But he used to go after our guys, yeah. you know, as, as he's doing his job and, and did a tremendous job doing it. And I just thought maybe it was time to fight him. And I, I said, I, like any time, you know, you go enough is enough. And, yeah. That was I, I. I don't think we really. It wasn't. They weren't great fights. They yeah. were just fights. Yeah. You know. Um, it's almost like we probably should have got double minors in that five minutes. <laughs> no, I get it. Now the next season in ninety eight ninety nine, uh, they it's like a, almost a completely different team. You know, Dean's gone and Heinz has gone. Uh, you mentioned Dodie Woods there, uh, Brendan Urema, David Ling. Um, and one guy, a guy played, uh, he's sort of a minor league legend, he played one game in Kansas City, and I believe he fought Louis DeBrusque. I don't know if you remember the meat grinder, Marty Melnichuk. I remember Marty. He was a big man. Mm. I don't remember the fight. Yeah. Louis was a pretty tough guy. I watched, yeah. I watched Louis fight a lot yeah. when he was with the Rangers, but I remember him. I don't, I don't remember the fight, but yeah. it was something I... I think yeah he wasn't there very long and we brought him in for a specific reason and we just I think we had guys coming and going all the time but he was a, he was a big man that I think he had the one fight. he might have if I remember correctly he might have got he might have gotten to a fight that game and hurt himself okay he well, might have he might have got hurt and then that was it he uh, I think they got rid of him after that I can't I can't remember well they might have brought him in because that Vegas team was loaded that's where uh where Dean ended up going, Dean Ewan ended up going there, and they had him and Louie and Kevin Kaminsky and yeah. uh, Sammy Hellenius, McCambridge, um, yeah. uh, Chad Wagner played there, Lorne Taves played there, so it might have brought him in because that, that Vegas team was a scary team that year. You had uh, two fights against them that year. Uh, I saw you fought McCambridge and you fought the, the big Finn, Sammy Hellenius. I did. I remember. I remember fighting Mac, and, and he was just. I probably fought more defensemen than than Fords over the years, just because you know you dump the puck in, you're battling in front of the net, mm-hmm. you're battling in the corner, and, and I remember fighting Mac. He was a big guy who was also a Camus Blazer alumni, so he's a fellow alumni here. I don't know why I fight guys I neither <laughs> know or were friends with. Yeah. And uh, and it was just probably one of those fights. And the Sammy Helenus one, it was, I don't think it was a good fight. It was just a drop the gloves in a wrestling match. But mm-hmm. Mac and I had, I think, a, a decent fight. He was a big, tall, 
lanky arm guy that uh, you know he could hold you out. He had some bombs, but it was something that uh, it, was, it was a decent fight. But the Sammy Helenus one was—I don't think it was a great fight, if I can remember correctly. And one guy you fought that year who um, usually has pretty good fights, and I haven't seen it, so that's why I'm going to ask you about. Uh, Indianapolis had a guy named Ryan Vandenbush. He he was t- he was tough. Yeah. And uh, he was tough. He wasn't a big guy, but he yeah. could. I think he threw with both hands, if yeah. I remember correctly. It was that's what that was the old saying. If we ever traded for a guy, it was always what's he like? Good guy likes his beers, throws with both hands. <laughs> <laughs> He's a scary guy to fight, though. He he was a, he was a tough kid. He was one of those. He was a feisty guy. When you're fighting feisty guys, they're dangerous because they're throwing bombs from both sides and and they're battling they're like little hard workers in there they have no rhyme or reason and they're just trying to beat the shit out of you and you're ducking and dodging left right and center so he 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 was a he was a tough guy and i think he threw a lot of lefts too but again i i I don't remember winning many fights i just remember being in them yeah well he's memorable so uh you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) now i gotta ask you the next season uh, well, first off, let me ask you this. Next season, you played with a guy who I hope to get on the show, and I've already talked to him about it. Hopefully, we'll make it happen soon. Uh, Sugar Ray Schultz. <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was a little bit like Cruiser, big, tall, kind of a faint guy, yeah. super nice guy, nice small, blonde-haired guy that was tough. Yeah, and he he was a, He was a tough. He was a big, tough guy, and and you know what? He was a good teammate. He was a he was one of those guys that was always you know he wasn't he wasn't a prick in practice he worked hard he was just an all-around good teammate that was tough and it was good to have him on our team so he wasn't the kind of guy that would take the net off the moorings and uh slide it <laughs> at a player uh, his own teammate in practice he's not one of those guys <laughs> <laughs> no he's not that was, yeah. those guys are assholes <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i have to ask you about obviously you fight guys here and there sometimes you fight them more than once this year was the second time you fought a guy named Alex Vasilevsky. I, you know what? I remember fighting him, and I can't remember why. I mean, you fought him twice. That's what I'm wondering. I mean, he probably did something dirty. His name's Vasilevsky. He would have. You know so. what? I, I never. I don't know why. I don't really. I'm not. Um, I know a lot of Europeans didn't fight back then. They just yeah. didn't fight. Mm-hmm. But he would have been a guy that would have played hard. He probably was a little bit dirty with his stick. Yeah. And that would have probably pissed me off at some point. Or he pissed somebody off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't always fight for myself. I enjoyed yeah. fighting and sticking up for my teammates as I had many teammates stick up for me. Yeah. So it, it, my, I remember fighting him and I probably. I, I wouldn't have beaten him up or I would have remembered that and, and some of those guys some of the Russians were pretty strong they had massive legs yeah and uh, they weren't as easy to they just they could they could stand their own and they were they were uh, I remember fighting uh, Fedosov in Detroit's training camp and and he was just an absolute bull yeah and and I hit him a few times it was like it was like he didn't even phase him wow so some of those guys, they, they probably could have fought more. They just didn't because they were absolute human machines. Like they were, they worked out hard when, when a lot of guys didn't. And they were, they were in tip-top shape and really strong. And if you're, as, as a fighter, if you have good balance, yeah. it's, it's a real advantage to you. So the, the last question about North America, and this is something we discussed before I started recording. So everyone, people that know me know I like to collect stuff, game you stuff. And 
Uh, I was looking recently online trying to find one of your sticks or gloves, whatever it is, and uh, it wasn't for sale, but someone had posted a picture of uh, a game you stick of yours that he had, uh, he had in his possession, and where the name goes, where normally it would say Chizowski, it said big chiz at AOL.com. So uh, are you probably the first and only guy to ever put your personal email on a hockey stick? I remember, I remember when the stupid internet came out and um, I got onto the AOL because I thought it was absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. And you chat with people and I thought, this is crazy. And I, I kind of said something to our trainer, John Doolin, at the time, and Doolin was like, let's just put put that on your stick i'm like sure i don't care mm -hmm. and i had that on my sticks all year the one year and i can't remember if i was in kansas city playing because duels was our trainer after pick left in in new york mm. and then duels was my trainer in in um in kansas city so it was just one of those things i put it on my stick i still have one i think i have one at home here somewhere yeah but uh, to look at those old wood sticks is absolutely it's just it's mind-blowing for kids to see them now and i still use a wood stick when i play men's hockey and people think i'm crazy but i love it so now if you gave any of those sticks out did anyone ever actually email you and said oh i got your stick with your email on it <laughs> not one uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, what made what led to your decision to uh, finish your career in Europe? My brother had gone over there, and, and he was playing. Uh, he was playing in the DEL at the time, I believe. But then he ended up marrying a German girl, and he lives in in a in a part of Germany, and in, in just outside of Garmisch Partenkirchen, in a little town called Mittenwald, which is south of, of Munich. And he had, uh, you know, him and I always obviously we talked. He said, you know, you could come over to Europe and, and make some decent money and, and, ha and have a still a good career here. And I had a young family at the time, and I actually, uh, my wife worked at the hospital here, and she says, why don't you go and we'll come over and visit, but go and play, because obviously I still had a passion for hockey, and I wanted to try and make some money. And realistically, I could go to Europe and make more money playing there than I could in the minors here. So it also, uh, you know, it also... It, it, uh, gave me an opportunity to probably um, lengthen my career because you only play 40 games over there. You play Friday, Sunday. Uh, your season's a lot shorter. And, and, and on a bigger rink, the game is a little bit less physical. So it's not as demanding and hard on your body. And, and that's what I did. I went and played in... in I was in a bunch of different cities in Europe. If you have a good year, I like signing a one-year deal. If you have a good year, someone will pay you more money the next year. So I ended up going to starting in Augsburg in the DEL, and then I went and played in Munich for a little bit, and then I played in a little town called Schwenigen. I was there for three years in Germany, and then I played three or four years in Austria, and it was uh, it was it was a neat experience, different, way different than North America, but a real neat experience. So your your uh, first year in Schwinnigan, you managed to fight a couple of North Americans. Uh, <laughs> I did. Guy yeah. Lahoo, Francois yeah. Larue, and uh, Mark Mattier from uh, the Western League. Yeah, the Guy Lahoo fight was an interesting one because I was an offensive guy in my team, and he was doing everything. Because if you get into a fight there, you get kicked out of the game. So he asked me to fight. I'll bet you a hundred times that game, and I said nope. Yeah. Nope, nope, I'm not fighting you. Finally, I 
finally I just said, "Fuck it, I'm gonna fight them." Yeah. And we had a re- we had a really good fight. And it's and it's ironic because, you, you know, you're, there's not a lot of imports on each team, but I for whatever reason I found that we'd go over there and the imports played the hardest against each other because we were just used to. It. Yeah. That's how we played against each other all the time in, in North America. And I fought him, and then I fought Frankie, which was ironic because when I played in New York. Uh, my mom and dad, who you know had a house in Edmonton with nobody in it uh, except my little sister, ended up billeting Francois Larue uh, uh-huh. when he played for the Oilers. Oh, nice! So I I ended up fighting him when I was over in Europe. So it's kind of a, a funny story. Again, there's always a connection to people I fight. I don't know why. Maybe that's why I fight with my wife all the time. Well, I don't think that's exclusive <laughs> to you guys. So uh, uh, it's just what we do. Yeah, and then you ended up in Austria again. Is this a thing? Where you say uh, one-year contract and then they pay you more money? Was that the opportunity yeah. to make more money? It was, yeah. And I went, I went down to Austria. Austria, unlike Germany, they so I was always told the Austrians don't like the Germans. It's a little bit of a rivalry. So they are, they try to be really polite and friendly, and and have everybody love them. And and you know, Germans are pretty hardcore. My sister-in-law is German, and they're yeah. very regimented and. The Austrians are quite different, and and when I went to Austria, it was almost like it was it was a breath of fresh air, mm-hmm. and I had a ball playing there. And it wasn't as much about the hockey; it was about um, being a part of the community and going to fan fests, and and it was just a, it was real neat. It was real neat way for me to finish my career because I really enjoyed it and had fun doing it. And when you get older, you get a little bit more. Uh, worn down and tired and it was hard you know to to maintain the staying in as good a shape or or recovering from injuries i guess if you will for the most part but austria was a neat way to finish and and i really enjoyed it there and i met some really neat people and we won a championship in vienna we had uh we had some phenomenal i had some teammates there mike craig who i played with on the world junior team drafted by minnesota played on the team there uh darcy Rorenko, who played in the western hockey league uh became a real good friend of mine we won the championship in vienna in 2005 and it was it was a lot of fun jim bonnie was our coach who was a magnificent coach freddie shabbat was our goalie who i uh loved to death um eric dubois whose boy plays in where is he in uh, columbus i think mm. he was on our team like we had a, just a remarkable team there and, and it was a lot of fun we had uh and we won the championship that year and that was another special special time in my uh in my career and then um you just what did you feel like you were done um you just decided that you were retired mm. maybe you wanted to just go back and see your family what led to that decision uh, well, after winning the championship and playing well, I got offered way more money to go play in Linz for a couple of years, which was another Austrian town. Yeah. So I decided to take that, and it kind of—I didn't—it didn't backfire, but I realized at that time I think I'm starting to miss which you do is my kids growing up, yeah. and I missed a huge part of their lives from the first time they started skating to the first time they you know played their hockey games to watching them grow up and i really struggled uh i really struggled with um being away from them and missing stuff and i remember coming home at christmas my second year in Linz after struggling the first year we went through about three or four coaches and it just it it it's it started to it started to 
dawn on me that my career is slowly coming to an end and I got to start thinking about life after hockey and I came home at Christmas time my second year in Lintz and I walked into the Camelot's Blazers office and our board governors were all in there and they offered me a job and I kind of laughed I said well you can't really afford me right now I said <laughs> I'm still making good money in Europe and I was going back and I kept in touch with uh, Dean Clark who was the coach at the time and the general manager and and I went back to Europe for a couple, probably a month. I got a phone call at the airport the next day by the president, and he said, if, if you'd like to retire and come back and work, then this job is an opportunity for you. And I thought, you know what? I, I've talked to a lot of guys. It's real hard. It's not easy, or it's not as easy as people think to walk into a job when you're done pl your playing career, especially when... I had no college degree. I had no, you know, not, I was just kind of considered a dumb hockey player. But at the end of the day, um, it was an opportunity for me to, A, come home and be with my family, my young family again, and, and B, um, you know, start a new career and, and put it behind me. And, and you know what? I, I really, I loved it because that was the time, first time in my life where I, I came home, I started working, I got to go and have a beer five o'clock at the end of a work day and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because I'd never done that yeah you know you meet meeting guys at a bar at five o'clock at the end of the week you're just you, there's no such thing as days of the week when you're playing hockey it's you play games every day is, is a different day and you, there's no such thing as weekends or weekdays or Sunday it didn't matter um, one of the things you did after you retired is uh, something uh, not, I guess not the whole thing there is something on YouTube uh, something called Dancing Like the Stars, <laughs> which was, which was done for charity. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about that and why you were uh, that that piece that's on YouTube with the, the two other guys where you're uh, it's it singing, you know, uh, lip syncing and everything. That is absolutely <laughs> yeah. priceless. Uh, but what was the story behind that? Well, it's. Uh, it started with um, me getting cancer. Oh, I didn't know this. I haven't shared this with anybody, Joe. Oh, man. And in 2013, I got testicular cancer, and it was a shock to me, obviously. And I ended up having surgery and removed it and went to a it was it's almost like one of those things when it happened to me it made me more aware of thing other things that were going on in the world and i went to a i went to a cancer fundraiser event after i got mine and i had kind of had my surgery and recovered after a few months and i went to this i went to a cancer fundraiser it was a breast cancer fundraiser it was called dancing like the stars and our mayor of Kamloops, who was a buddy of mine, um, was dancing in it. And I kind of, in my big mouth, and after a few glasses of wine, made fun of him. And he went up on the podium and announced to all 750 people in the in the place that I had offered to dance in this fundraiser the next year. Oh. <laughs> it was my <laughs> fault because I deserved it. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It was it was something that I actually wanted to do. My wife works in the hospital in the in a in the breast cancer uh, area. She works in screening mammography and diagnostic imaging, and it was kind of fitting in a, in a way that 
I could go and do something and give back to the hospital. So I ended up uh, I ended up dancing with a girl. Um, we raised 130 grand wow. uh, for the hospital, and it was a it was a real neat part of my life because I was doing it for obviously for two reasons. I didn't realize how much. I was going to need that hospital in town, which I was, you know, a part of uh, in, in, you know, growing up in Edmonton and moving to Kamloops. I spent more time in the hospital in the last six years than I probably did at home. And it was something I wanted to give back and, and be a part of. And, and you know, I've, I've never shared it with anybody. I, I, it's, not a, it's not a pity thing. Yeah. I, I've never wanted sympathy because there's so many people with worse conditions and and. and more difficult cancers that they've had to deal with if they haven't taken their lives and it was something that was a huge shock to me and and uh it it was uh, it was challenging and it, and it still is because you know anytime you think about it and I, I remember those days i got it like it was yesterday when i found out it was it's a shock to your system and and to be able to do something and give back i guess and and now to this day i try and support as many you know cancer related things as I possibly can and, and go to different events and support them because sadly I guess you, you you don't do it as much as you should until something happens to you and you realize you know you're part of that and, um, it was something that I uh, I did and, and, I, and I'm pretty proud of it well, how are you feeling now I feel great outside of the days where I think about those days because it's yeah. it's a shitty feeling yeah. but I do feel good it's it's something that's affected me because I've uh, you know my my body's way different now mm-hmm. since it's happened I get uh, you, you don't um, there's there's a lot of different moving pieces in your body and, and when your body doesn't produce you know for example testosterone uh you get tired there's there's a lot of days where if i'm not i have to take medication for the rest of my life and you know what it is what it is but there's days where i i, I can honestly i go to bed at like five o'clock or six o'clock because i'm dead tired yeah but it's not hot you know what i've gotten back into better shape i ride my bike every morning i try probably in better shape now than i was when i played hockey even though my kids would say otherwise <laughs> but i you know i got into doing a little hot yoga and, and honestly it's it's something that uh, it's changed my life forever, and and uh, you know it makes you appreciate some things that you didn't appreciate in the past. But it's not something that I never told anybody. I didn't tell my mom and dad because you know my parents I, they worry and they don't yeah. live near me, and it was something that I never told anybody. I didn't. It was something I didn't want to share with anybody because it was nobody's business. It was my battle I had to go through, and nobody could help me. It's like if you don't understand what I'm going through, yeah. you can't help me. Yeah. And that was one thing. And you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't shared it with a lot of people, but I now, I'm, I'm now open about it. And you know, it's something that uh, that you deal with, and you and you keep going. And you know what? It's changed me, but I'd like to think it's for the better. Some days are shittier than others, but that's that's life. Well, I I didn't expect that, man. I, I, <laughs> you know, def- I thought about not yeah. telling you, Joe, and yeah. it's something. It was a big. It was a big. It's a big part of who I am yeah. and why I do certain things. And and one of it was why we why I wanted to uh, to go and, and and help the hospital and help raise all that money because I was really proud of being able to help and give back because I've always. I've always I'm one of those guys where I love helping my neighbors. If anybody's doing something, I love helping people, and that's yeah. just something I've always done. That's amazing. So, uh, well, good. I'm, I said in the beginning we're going to start family and we're going to end with family. So we mentioned that your brothers, 
Uh, you have brothers that played pro, both drafted, and uh, there are some little Chizowskis running around uh, that play uh, play different levels of hockey. So uh, you have a nephew, Tyler Chizowski, and your own sons, Nicholas and Ryan. So could you tell us a little bit about them? I do. You know what? It's great. I, I love seeing the kids grow up and, and, and have dreams and goals, and, it, and it's, it's really special to see, watch them grow through their hockey and their life and I, you know, I have two boys uh, Nick who played uh, for the Canucks Blazers for five years which I was very fortunate enough to watch him play every night uh, moved on and is in his second year at uh, the University of Waterloo playing hockey there um, he's in sciences and he's a brilliant young man who's stubborn and thinks he knows everything in the world <laughs> and he probably does to some degree but he's it, it's fun to watch him you know, change his focus from having a goal to playing in the NHL now to becoming a doctor, doing something in, in science, and and I think it's wonderful. And I, you know, I always as a, as a hockey dad, you're always like, oh, I hope he plays in the NHL. I hope he can do this. But you know what? I I just want, and, and maybe because of of what's happened to me in my life, my biggest goal for my kids is to be healthy yeah. and to be happy. And and success is is you know whatever you want. Yeah, because I know a lot of, got a lot of buddies that got a lot of money and they're not happy. And money doesn't make you happy, but but good health and being surrounded by good people and doing what you love does. And and that's all I want for my boys. And and my other boy Ryan's in his fourth year in the WHL. He's just finished. Uh, you know, obviously due to all the circumstances, his his fourth year in in Medicine Hat with the Tigers. And and he is. Uh, you know, he has a. He has aspirations of trying to play pro hockey, and, and I believe, like I've taught both of them, you guys can do whatever you want. It's going to be up to you, and nobody's going to hold you back from, from achieving a goal if, if, if you want it bad enough. And and my older boy wants to do something in, obviously, sciences, and my younger boy wants to play hockey, and I, I strongly believe and encourage them each and every day to follow their dreams because it's pretty cool. Uh. Man, I, I got to tell you, uh, well, I'll say this first. Uh, thing I ask everybody when I'm done with the interviews is, uh, because I pride myself on my, my research, I don't want to half-ass this because you're taking the time to talk to me. Uh, did I miss anything about your career? Uh, no, I don't <laughs> think so. Honestly, it's, it, we could probably talk for, I mean, there's... So over the course of 20, what it was, 23 cities and 18 yeah. different years, there's a lot of stories. And, and I know, Joe, you know, with with all the people you know and, and the players that, you know, I've played that, that we, we, you know, have a friendship with, there's so many stories. Yeah. And, and you can go on for hours mm -hmm. and hours and hours. And it's crazy how... You know, even just talking to you, it, it brings back memories of other stories and other kind of events that have gone on. And it's just, it's something that you just have as a hockey player. And, and when you go through so many years of playing pro hockey, there's so many different stories. But you know what, I was I, I love chatting with you. Your story is a phenomenal one, if I might add. And, and when I read about it the first time, it gave me, uh, you know, such chills because you understand what it is to go through adversity and uh, being challenged at a completely different level than what we faced in, in adversity as hockey players. And, you know, it's, 
life is funny that way and I think it's remarkable what you're doing and, and how you're uh, you're reaching out to people and being a part of everybody's life and I think it's tremendous and, and courageous of you well I really appreciate that uh, you know it's weird it, it's weird for me um, because like I I downplay it because I don't think I did anything that special like I think I did what anyone else would have done so I'm always it's always a little awkward when I say thank you because I do appreciate the sentiment but uh, you know I just kind of like I, you know I, I'll accept the, I'll accept the credit but you know it is what it is I mean listen it's like when you, you said you had cancer and you did what you had to do and it's done and when I was in that situation I did what I had to do and uh, you know like I, I just look at it as I'm sure we think along the same lines like you know, I'm blessed to be here because honestly, I should be dead, and I'm not. 100. Yeah, and, uh, and absolutely. Yeah, and I still remember you, Joe, as a long-haired with that mullet <laughs> standing around the rink, yeah, with sticks in your hand, and I love it. Yeah. I, that, you know, it does. It makes me feel young again. I think it's awesome <laughs> that we've been able to uh, to to connect with each other again, and I love all the stories yeah. too. I think it's great. Well, I'm gonna leave you with this then. Um, like I, I said, I had a lot of questions for you because over the years I, I had uh, things in my head that I, I figured that uh, I, I had my own opinions like, geez, I can't imagine what he's going through and the pressures you felt as a kid and, and you basically just confirmed most of the stuff that, that I had thought. So, you know, for myself, selfishly, I'm, I'm happy about that. But everything else, man, I mean, I always thought, like I said, going through your stats, like I said earlier, it would have been easier for you to just, you know, put your head down and sulk and walk away and be miserable. And, you know, I mean, even to, to a larger extent, I mean, I'm sure someone I else... I did that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? But but look at look at how you came out on the other end. I mean, honestly, your, your story, um, even just on a hockey level, where it would have been easy for you to just get down the dumps and stay there. But every time you played you had a, and you had a chance to play and you had support and you had people that believed in you, you put up amazing numbers. Uh, everybody that I know that played with you says what an amazing teammate you are. And then just what you've done after playing, uh, I mean, I'm going to say you're inspirational. You may not believe that, but I truly believe that you are inspirational and the amount of lives that you've probably touched since retiring, um, it's, it's an amazing thing. So you should be really proud of yourself. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. So... Uh, with that, uh, if I didn't miss anything, I will uh, I will let you go. Uh, your wife is probably wondering where you are, and I will let you go. And uh, I just she's walking the dog. It's, she's good. <laughs> All right, Jetsy, you got me out of a walk today, so I'm happy. <laughs> oh, so uh, I'm gonna just leave it at that and sign off. And uh, just thank you again for your time. And I'm definitely uh, we definitely got to catch up uh, with the recorder off. And I definitely want to hear some more stories. Sounds good, Joe. Appreciate it. Dave, have a great day, man. Thank you so much again for joining me. You as well, buddy. All right. All the best. All right. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Dave for the time and for telling his story. Um, as you can tell by my reaction when he uh, discussed him having cancer, I didn't know. I had no idea. And as he said, he's never really told anyone aside from uh, close family and I'm sure some friends, uh, I was absolutely blown away. Um, my, honestly, I went into this interview um, just hoping to confirm some of the things that I've always believed about Dave uh, in terms of him being rushed to the NHL and I really wanted to get his side of the story. Uh, but 
something like that you're never prepared for and i just think it goes to uh to dave's character what a what a character guy he is and just um you know coming forward with that uh you know it, it's something where i think it's selfless in the sense where he's just putting his experience out there and maybe it'll help someone come to terms with something that they're going through and um, lord knows dave has enough of those experiences to last a lifetime so uh, i really love this interview i really love the fact that dave didn't hold anything back in the interview and uh, it, it's probably one that i'm i'm the most proud of to be honest because um, like i said dave is a guy who was a second overall pick went through a ton of adversity uh, didn't sulk i mean he said you know there was some of that i guess but uh, uh, if you look at his career and what he's done since retiring. Um, a lot of the stuff he's done since retiring is really to help other people and to help kids. And I, I mean, that that is really what it's all about. And that's why I said in the interview what an inspiration uh, that he is. And I would imagine will continue to be once we uh, get back to, like I keep saying, whatever the new normal is, whenever he goes back to coaching junior and, and all the other stuff that he, he does in the community. So. Uh, once again, Dave, thanks so much uh, for your time, and uh, I really hope that uh, people who listen to this get everything out of your story uh, that you put out there. Uh, next week, I should have someone else. I'm working on that as we speak, and uh, if it comes to fruition, I know I'm uh, famous for saying if it comes to fruition, but if it comes to fruition, I think it's going to be a pretty good interview. So um, until then, everybody have a great week. You people stay safe out there.